Hey, this is Dragon Slayer Coach Wade, and you're listening to the Survivor Historians. And now, here are four guys who never would have made it to the top of that coconut tree. Welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast where four people repeatedly sharpen each other. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm so sharp, I feel like we're going to talk about an episode this time. I'm Mike Bloom. I'm so sharp, I hid the machete and other sharp objects around us. Um, and I'm Paul Oselson. I didn't get the memo that it had to be a sharp joke, so I was going to make some joke that I feel like Mother Teresa compared to you a-holes, so um, let's do this. All right. That joke was pretty good. So good job, Paul. Thanks. <laughs> all right. What we are pa- back. What Paul really wanted was your approval. <laughs> yeah, that's all I care about. That's all I want. What we he did... wanted more than anything else was for Uncle Mario to say, hey, Paul, good job. What do you think of my voice, Mario? Yeah, off having a little sob session. <laughs> Paul, I'll give you some tips. Take the feather out of your hair before you podcast. Okay, thanks, Uncle Mario. Yeah, well, you didn't realize that Uncle Mario gave nephew Paul a whole laundry list of things he needs to do better next time. And we'll see if Paul either sticks with them or completely ignores them and decides that he's in the right still. Yes. Don't tell your Montana stories. People mock you. There's no need to tell them. Okay, I feel weird. I've talked way too much for Historians Podcast. Like, normally, like, I'm I'm pushing, like, 33% of the conversation right now, so I need to back off a little bit. So I'll see you guys in about 20 minutes. So <laughs> One right, voice, Paul. Here. One voice. <laughs> That's what I hear. That's what I hear. That we got to kind of limit the voices being, uh, being uh, used here, so I'm going to back off. All right. Speaking of one voice, I'll take control back and uh, welcome to part two of our Heroes versus Villains Spectacular. Uh, you may remember that we did part one and for the first time in, in historian's history, we never actually got to an episode. <laughs> we were simultaneously embarrassed of that and proud of that. But I promise there will be discussion of episodes in this one. Yeah, I'm I pretty mean, sure we'll, we, we might get to like Tribal Council in episode one at the third hour, right? Yeah, well, that's a full episode. We will get at least through one episode. And let, let's also, full disclosure, the embarrassment to proud ratio of that was probably about 20 to 80. Like, I, I was super proud of it and, like, not really that embarrassed about it. <laughs> oh, you know what's funny is I got so much feedback from that first episode. People said it was so, you know, informative and you just went into the casting and it was so deep in your dive and, like, who was cast and why. Like, they said that was one of the best episodes you've ever done. So that that was not the feedback I was expecting, but I am 
constantly surprised and amused by what flies with our audience and what doesn't. So uh, thank you for all the feedback from part one. I mean, we basically are using heroes versus villains with like a crock pot cooking method where we're just sort of throwing our talk into a low and slow method of talking through this season. So can't wait for our 16 part takedown of heroes versus villains coming up here. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All right. So we're not going to waste too much time because we have a lot to get into. Is there anything else you guys want to do as our little preamble here? Oh, my going? God. Really? What? Do we just did a whole flipping episode about it. And by just did, I mean, we did it like four years ago. But you know what? <laughs> we're good. I, I do feel like did we talk about the uh, the 10 year anniversary party that happened that CBS threw before the premiere? Because I think that's pretty fun. I, I have literally no idea what we talked about. I'm very afraid I'm going to repeat many things that I said before. So we may have talked about that party. We may have not. I, I literally have no idea. Mike, please talk about it for our audience, okay? Uh, CBS held a 10-year anniversary party for Survivor. I believe they invited basically everyone who's been on the first 20 seasons of the show to attend. CBS still has a video up there somewhere where a bunch of players uh, just sort of talk to the camera about their time on Survivor. It, it's a cool thing for Survivor nerds such as ourselves to see, you know, Alex Bell and uh, Kim, you know, Kim Powers hanging out or, you know, other randos from all these other teen eras sort of co-mingling. And I know that over the years there's been stories as well about that 10-year anniversary party. But again, if we're sort of placing things in the timeline of Survivor history and what was happening at the time, CBS really rolled out the red carpet in honor of this 10-year anniversary of Survivor, not just in celebrating it via the season we're about to talk about, but actually a party as well to bring together all the people who had played the series thus far. All right. I think well done, there Mike. were some sweet uh, Dave Ball uh, dance moves in some of those videos too, I believe. <laughs> if there's one thing that we hope you take from this podcast that, that is that there are sweet Dave Ball dance moves to be found on the internet. So there yeah, you go. Have we talked about Samoa enough yet? Do we need to take a few steps back and revisit Samoa before we dive into these episodes? <laughs> no, we're good. We covered Samoa, people. Okay, focus. We're not going to waste any more time, okay? Laser focus. We're going to go straight ahead. And before we get to that, Paul, how was your Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> happy new year happy hanukkah <laughs> okay here we go episode one i promise we're gonna do this now here we go heroes versus villains the one of the most if not the most beloved season out there it's one that um i will flat out say it's not my favorite season but there's so many fun things to talk about so we're going to try to do it justice here and we open up with one of the most iconic openings to any season ever the uh four black helicopters or as Col colby would call them the birds <laughs> Tying everybody in to drop them off on the beach. I mean, how could you not be hyped for this? As Colby says, you know, how could you not get your pulse going, whether you're in the bird or sitting at home watching this happen? Because not only is it a freaking packed cast for the most part, but having them actually sit in these big old choppers that bring them onto the beach is just... So much fun to make a granule entrance, and especially the little touches like having the heroes come off first and the villains blowing sand in their faces. <laughs> there's, there's just so many. I mean, this episode is incredible. I'm so happy it's two hours long There's because there's so many just incredible character moments in it. I mean, you could argue this might be – the season starts probably at its strongest and maybe winnows a bit from there. But, I mean, this is just a fantastic piece of television in general. I think I said when we did the Survivor All-Stars podcast that the opening shot, you know, and the opening sequence to Survivor All-Stars and pretty much the whole thing up until they kind of meet 
the three tribes on the mat. I think I, I literally, I think I said these words that it was, it was literally survivor porn in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, and not, and not the Jenna Lewis type, but like, you know, um, it, it was, you know, the, it was everything you wanted it to be. You were like all these players from all these seasons meeting and, and just the, the bombast of, of the boats coming in and, and the, and the helicopter and all these, those different elements coming in and heroes versus villains, this opening sequence, again, it's literally just survivor porn again. And, and I can't think of better seasons for that than these two full all-star seasons that we've had so far. Yeah, there's absolutely no criticism I can have of these debut episodes. Again, the first all-stars and then this one, like Jay said, it's just so fantastic. And the show has always been so good at kind of playing up their history, playing up the iconic characters. And then in heroes versus villains, they even go the next step. Like they're focusing on everybody's little, like uh they have like a little shtick or a little catchphrase, and then they, they focus on everyone's little emblem. Like they have a little focus on a close-up of Boston Rob's little bee hat. We see Rupert's tie-dye. Like it's just – and then you see Coach doing his little dragon foo or whatever. It's like – but it's really neat the way they do it. Like everyone's got a little shtick, and they, the uh, editors make sure to show every little character's thing as they're coming in, flying in the helicopter. It's just a neat little entrance. Yeah, and I love the confessionals that they use as well between, you know – you have Rupert and Russell, I think, as the best representations of the heroes versus villains themes, and they buy into it with Rupert saying, you know, in my world, I've always tried to show that good will win. And then Russell says, villains are better than heroes because they're not afraid to do stuff. Google it. It's a fact. Yep. Uh, but I think my favorite might have been Jerry going through her compendium of nicknames that she's gotten over the past uh, eight or so years. And don't forget, we also learned that Amanda likes to bungee jump. I was going to say most, most, uh, most epic, you know, we're going through all these really epic like openers here. So now we're going to cut to Amanda. Okay. Epic Amanda quote. And it's like, she's like half mumbling, talking about like, you know, that feeling when you go bungee jumping, it's just like, Oh, Amanda, come on, come on. We want to like you. We want to have faith in you. Do they have bungee jumping in Montana? Isn't it just like you step off a chair and that's considered bungee jumping? Um, I don't know what you're talking about, Mike, considering how mountainous and rural we are. Many people get to school uh, via bungee jumping. So <laughs> I'm shocked you have, here. I'm shocked you have bungee technology at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, first off, I'm just so proud that that was actually you taking a little dig at Amanda there. So I was, I'm very proud of you, Paul. You've come a long way. Well, well there's a lot San, of fun. Sandra's on this cast. So I think Paul has quickly ditched one love for another. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I would never use the term ditched, but there is, there was some, some disappointment for me with Amanda. So I, I'm very glad that I have, you know, another outlet to really root behind here, which is everything that Sandra does is amazing. And uh, maybe not the case for Amanda uh, in oh, this wow. season. Paul has pulled away his protection from Amanda, guys. So it's now fair game on the one Montana player here. So is there any other shtick here at the start that I'm forgetting? I remember they zoom in on everybody, and even Parvati kind of looks at the camera and is like, whoa, like all these little moments. Is there anything else I'm kind of forgetting here? Does, doesn't someone give a dirty look or a WTF look to Coach doing Coach Chi in the helicopter? I can't remember if it's Sandra or Parvati, but one of that, them does it. That would be Sandra. <laughs> yes. I on on the funny one fifteen I edited it to make it look like it was poverty, but it's actually Sandra. Coach does his little his little drawing the bow and the arrow, and then Sandra kind of looks at him like, "What the fuck was that?" I mean, safe safe to say that I think if Coach was sitting, if they had swapped spots, there was a non-zero chance Sandra would have just pushed Coach right out of the bird there, and we would have started with nineteen instead of twenty. <laughs> yeah, well, but Coach is so strong he could have survived that fall. You forget that. 
the the great part about Sandra in this too is you have all these people who are really kind of adjusting what they're saying to to fit the theme and to really go along with it. And Sandra fits the theme perfectly, but is just being hundred percent genuine, just saying like, Yeah, last time I was mean, this time I'm gonna be even meaner than I was last time. So, you know, she doesn't care if she's gonna lie, all these things like that. And like that's why she's so perfect. And then, you know, a little bit uh, later on we're gonna learn that she does not think she should be uh, yeah. a villain. So that's the thing. Like we're assuming <laughs> chronologically this is where the theme has not been announced yet so Sandra's just throwing this out there anyway I'm like yeah I'll lie I don't care what's the theme oh no <laughs> okay so yeah so just and again as Mike pointed out this is a two hour episode is this the only two hour premiere they've ever had they've had hour and a half ones they've had two episodes crammed together is this the only straight two hour episode I kind of forget was Australia wasn't two hours right no that was just no. an hour Okay, then yeah, I believe this is the only two-hour, and it, I mean, it sort of makes me wish that we always, or at least get this more frequently, especially for returning player seasons, because you look at this episode, I can't think of anything I would want to cut out of this episode. It's it's yeah. pretty immaculate. Yeah, and I have said before, like for my Funny 115 website, that this episode alone has the most entries of anything on any of the Funny 115s, that I think either 10 or 12 entries just come from this episode, so you, one could make the argument, like, this this might be my single favorite Survivor episode of all time. And if not, it's certainly in my top five. It's just, there's so much material. And like you said, with the extra hour to play with, they just have scenes like it was, we'll get to it, coach climbing up the palm tree and then placing a bet on where he's going to fall. I mean, that's, that would not show up in the traditional Survivor episodes. So that's the kind of stuff you get when they extend these episodes, especially the premiere. Like, it's just all interactions between characters. And so, as Jay said so eloquently, it's really Survivor porn. This is one of the single greatest episodes of all time. And I think that the fact that this episode is so good and so perfect and so all of these adjectives that we've placed onto it, I think that sort of it, it's the rose colored glasses to a lot of this season in the, in the sense that this mm. season as a whole is regarded as, you know, when when a lot of people, you know, list their favorite survivor seasons of all time. Heroes versus villains is usually in everyone's top three, I would say, pretty comfortably in a lot of ways or at top five uh, to be to be sure. And I think that on the whole, I wouldn't put it in my top five. I wouldn't put it in my bottom half of whatever seasons or anything like that. It's it's a decent enough season. I think that it loses a ton of steam, but I think that a lot of the average to low moments of the season, that's something that a lot of seasons of Survivor tend to have, you know, especially going on from season 20 and and so onward. But the fact that it has these high moments, this episode and a bunch of the stuff, especially near the beginning of this game, you can kind of go, okay, yeah, well, it's sort of average, but remember that opening episode? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% agree with that, because, yeah, it so, starts so strong, and then the drop, I would say, I wouldn't say the drop in quality, but the drop in entertainment level from episode one to two, it's pretty striking when you actually pay attention, and that's, I think, backing up what you said there, that this epic, this beginning is so epic, and then all of a sudden it gets bogged down in Rob versus Russell and the heroes suck, and it's kind of short episodes. Like, episodes two, three, and four, I would say, are strong only because they have a couple fun moments in them, and they have some really iconic challenges, but the more I pay attention of the season you realize there's not a lot going on other than that rob and russell story for like the first four episodes it's but this this uh premiere really i think skews the curve quite a bit yeah for those of you that that look at the episode and say like "Ooh, this is fun we're really getting to see a part of everyone 
hold on to that feeling and just like <laughs> put it in your pocket because it's not going to last very long. Well, that's what I was going to say is that in this first episode, you know, it kind of moves into this era of Survivor where we see so much. You watch the first episode and you can kind of pinpoint, okay, there's like three or four like characters or, or um, you know, storylines are setting up here to watch. And you can kind of predict, okay, it's going to be one of these four people. Like there's so much going on, on in this. Like you're not going to walk away from this first episode and be like, okay, well, it's definitely going to be one of these three people or Sandra who's going to win this in mm-hmm. the end. Like there's very much, there's, there's so many opportunities opportunities for um redemption arcs to come into play and so much like there's so much survivor mythology behind rooted in this episode and then also so many potential ways that the season's going to go based on what is set up in these uh these first two hours here's a funny experience i have every time i watch this premiere like i'm watching it and there's all these big iconic characters like wow there's coach there's sandra there's you know boston rob russell there's just Stephanie. I still can't get over that they got Stephanie and Tom back. And then they get into this big, uh, you know, the first challenge. And I'm going, wow, all these characters are going to square off. And then all of a sudden, randomly, Tyson pops up. I'm like, wait, Tyson's there too. Like, I kind of, you kind of forget about him because he's not one of the big, the biggest name characters at the time. But like, all of a sudden, he shows up. I'm like, this guy is the star of every scene he's in. And they don't even show him for the first five minutes. He's just like a side character. I'm like, wow, that's a quite an embarrassment of riches here in this casting. One of the things that they're able to benefit from with this longer runtime is that Jeff really marinates in this pre-challenge Matt chat when he announces the theme. I mean, he basically goes around, basically says, Colby, give me a life update, Slash. Remember when you were really popular? Uh, <laughs> James, you're still hulking. Does that scare everybody? Uh, you know, I, I did, and then Boston Rob, why don't you talk more trash about Colby to remind him, reopen those wounds from the All-Stars days? Uh, it seems like, again, they're really relishing the idea of bringing all these people back into one arena. And let's remember that, you know, we, this happened a couple of other times between All-Stars and Heroes versus Villains with Guatemala and Micronesia. But we haven't reached the age yet where returning players are going to be coming back, you know, nearly every season for a good stretch of time. So it feels like it's really special. And so I can understand why Jeff would spend a lot of time just trying to have them trash talk each other and build up this rivalry that comes to a heat almost from the get-go with this challenge. So there's a lot of little fun moments here when the, the players first arrive on the beat. And Mike already talked about one that I just absolutely love that they just the psychologically, they put the heroes there first and they're all standing there, and, you know, smiling. And then the villain's helicopter comes up and literally blows sand in their face. And so all the heroes are like getting all annoyed as the villains make their entrance. It's just such a neat little psychological thing. And let's see any, anything you, you want to talk about specifically about these entrances. Like, like I have in my notes here that I always, Every time I watch this, I'm amused at how fat Boston Rob is in the first episode. Like, he really bulked up from what we were used to seeing him. And he'll lose the weight as the season goes along. But you got, let's see, Chunky Boston Rob. You got uh, Jeff talking about how people once named their kids after Colby, which I should point out, I once named a cheese after Colby, so I never named my kids after him. That's, and that's, then, a, that's only, only a couple steps from dog. So I think that, <laughs> yeah. you know, Colby could eat Colby. <laughs> Well, he was that popular. Yeah, he could get away with that. And then we have the, the little cute moment that I always remember where Courtney, like, pops Parvati on the nose and kind of pokes her, and they have this little moment together. Just lots of fun little stuff. Is there anything I'm forgetting here? Well, I think we talked about this during the last episode we did. How weird is it? I mean, again, it's just underlining the weirdness of the fact that you had this Black Widow brigade that included Amanda, Sari, and Parvati, but they're on separate tribes. 
You know, <laughs> yeah. like when Jeff goes to Parvati, he's like, Parvati, the reason why you're over there is because you helped, you were a part of one of the most notoriously, you know, bloodthirsty alliances in Survivor history. I wonder how the other two reacted to those <laughs> accusations, considering they were basically with her every step of the way. Well, let but me think, point out. Well, let me point out. He didn't say she was part of the Black Widow Brigade. He said she led the Black Widow Brigade, which is exactly yeah, so the, what they did in the edit in Micronesia too. So the others get off on that. Well, it's yeah, it's moments like that, and then also moments when you have like you know Stephanie Lagrosa being like, "Wow, these guys really are villains." Like, oh yeah, sorry, the pure Stephanie Lagrosa who's never been considered <laughs> a villain in her entire life. I hope she doesn't say the R word this season. But I, th- I think that brings up a point in the sense of. It's where multiple seasons get murky in, 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 you know, when we had Survivor All-Stars the first season, it was literally that was the first time they brought people back. So everyone that was on Survivor All-Stars had played Survivor exactly once. And now you've got uh, heroes versus villains. And, yeah, we haven't had a ton of returnee seasons. I know they're super commonplace for at least a couple of returnees to be on every every episode, uh, season of Survivor. But for Survivor heroes versus villains, the the total uh, you know, you you could possibly play. I mean, it could, it could be it could be more because you know there was Stephanie and Bobby John in theory in Guatemala, and you have Survivor Micronesia. So so you have these multiple seasons. So you could have played the game more than once. You could have played it twice. And so for people like Parvati, you know, or Sari that have played the game more than once, the question is always when you get to this heroes versus villains. I don't think they take the aggregate for everything that you're going it's just basically what was your what was your what was your best season what was your most iconic season and so for parvati it sure as heck wasn't uh cook islands so it's going to be micronesia so she's micronesia parvati whereas sari and amanda are probably china and uh uh panama exile island uh versions of themselves so it's this weird sort of brand where certain people get rebranded with the new season that they're in, but some people, it's like, no, 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 Stephanie, we're going to forget Guatemala. You're Palau, Stephanie. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, you're really just picking one variant of them. And the Stephanie one is the most striking to me. I mean, she's like the America's ultimate hero. And then she's like America's ultimate loudmouth trash talker, spoiled brat. Like, <laughs> which one of those are you going to pick for Stephanie? And obviously, I'm, I'm glad they picked the one they did, because I still, to this day, still think Stephanie and Tom were the biggest gets in this cast. And I thought it was so cool that they got those two. But like you said, it gets murky when they've already been repeat players before Heroes versus Villains. And that's right. why one thing that's a big difference between this and All-Stars, like, I'm watching this today, and I'm watching, oh, James, they got James from China. And I, I think, wait a minute, he had already been back once. This is his second, yep. so I, you kind of forget some of those. So it, we're starting to get a little murky with Survivor history blending into some weird areas here. You know, and, and sometimes they don't run into that problem because you have Rupert blesses. Rupert is the same every single time. You know, he just is Rupert, and we've talked about him, you know, just forever and ever and ever, but Rupert is just Rupert. Boston Rob. You know, he, he's gotten nicer over the years and he's obviously going to, you know, he did a lot of stuff. I, I, I feel like Boston Rob is like weirdly maligned in Redemption Island in the sense that like he actually did a lot more than we even saw on the screen. But mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that's the case with everything going on there. But Boston Rob is basically a I'm going to seize control and then try to stranglehold everybody into winning this game. And it's like he tried it in Marquesas, didn't really work, tried it with better success in All-Stars like 
he's just kind of been the same guy. So you have mm-hmm. these consistent sort of characters going well, there. And then, but then you and it's tricky when you get someone like Jerry Manthe, who was a villain, but then totally rebranded herself as a hero in All Stars. Yes. yes. And everything ended so positively for her. You know, they have to, you know, say Jerry, you got to go back to being a villain. Right. It's like, you know, Jerry is Australia Jerry. It's not All Stars Jerry. And I, I, that's why I always find it very weird because it's this, it's this sub, it's this sub genre of of why you play the game uh, in Survivor. Like before, it was you play the game literally for adventure or to be on TV or to win a million dollars were kind of the main things. And now, a, a lot of times, I feel like people play the game in order to be picked to play the game again. And then once you get on the on the show again, you have this choice of am I going to take my character that I've already developed in the first season that I was on or that the TV showed that I was on and amplify it? Or am I going to re, you know, just repurpose myself and make myself a brand new character? And, you know, some people try it with various successes, but I feel like Survivor, for the most part, does not take your aggregate body of work. They just pick one that they like and then that's who you are. And to follow up on what you just said, I get a lot of flack for this opinion as I always say that I don't consider returning player seasons to be real survivor seasons. To me, it's like it's a novelty. And that's what you just said is exactly why. Because I love what I love about survivors that it's real. How it, you know, takes your basic human elements and they're magnified back and you see how you as a person would respond to this horrible, unethical, extreme game and situation. But once people are start coming back, now they're playing more for their character or their legacy. So that's it, it, I'm just trying to explain my point of view. I don't know if you guys feel much differently, but this is why I can't really take returning player season seriously, because to me, it's there's so much where they're trying to play for their legacy and the return value and just how they're going to change their image and, the, and like that. So that's you just you just touched on exactly why I like this season, but I could never rank it among my favorites because I don't really consider this like actual survivor. So you basically feel like it's too meta. Yeah, I mean, for the most part. And that's the nice thing about the first season, Borneo, is that it's not meta at all. Like, it's all right there in the screen. You know exactly why everyone's doing everything. And, like, they all have different rationales. Dr. Sean, of course, wants to come out and have a Hollywood career, so he's not going to be the scumbag. And, and like, uh, Rudy doesn't want to be around the homosexuals because it'll be bad for his military buddies. Like, they all have thought processes why they do things the way they do but they're all very true to who they are as a person so that's why when it gets a little meta for me i tend not to like it as much i just it's i it can be fun but i just don't find it as interesting but would you could you make the argument though that everything after the first season is meta absolutely yeah i i've always said that my this is another thing i say all the time is that i think there's only one survivor season really borneo and everything after that is an homage to survivor and then, so yeah, so I really think after the first season, there's way less authenticity, and that's why the first one almost feels like a documentary, and I would assume you guys would probably agree with that, at least to that extent. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely less about, I think the game as we know it, even at this state that we're talking about it, which is more gameplay-based and more about, you know, some outrageous characters, at least compared to those initial days, whereas the first season, I think, was more about the actual survival element that's in the name and mm-hmm. voting people out just happened to be something that they did at the end of every episode. Well, what about you guys? Do you guys think returning player seasons are too meta? I'm curious what you would say about that. I, I think it's it's tricky 
Um, like I, I agree with what you say with it, Mario, but I think it's like tricky in a situation like um, where we look at heroes versus villains where you have like it's not a level playing field at all about how you have these people who some it's their first time returning for other people. It's their third time. It's a mix of some people are playing all by themselves with no one from their past. Some people are playing with multiple people or perhaps people from two of their seasons. So that's where it gets really murky. I think um, sometimes, you know, there'll be future seasons where they try things where it's only people who have this is their second chance doing it. So everyone's kind of on the same playing field that way. Um, so I try not to, to think about it too much. So it doesn't ruin the whole experience for me because I definitely get that. Like th- there's a part of that you kind of just have to put away and kind of ignore because it just totally reshapes the game, having all these different variables that are different for every single person in the game. Yeah, that, that I completely agree that, I mean, for me, usually on paper, I'd rather see an all new player season than a all returning player season just because like Paul said these seasons are less about this idea of 16 to 20 people stranded in the wilderness have to build a society that also includes part and parcel eliminating one another and it's more so how do you rely on past relationships and pre-game alliances to you know mm-hmm. work on the island and there are some things that end up changing a bit once you actually get out there but uh, it's sort of, you know, the the gaming system, which already happened back in All-Stars with this uh, Tom, Rob, K- uh, Kathy, Lex thing that was going on preseason. It's, it's always something that's been a part of returning player season. I think it's just an unfortunate externality because, yeah, like Paul said, it's less about people gauging their personalities for the first time and learning how to interact with each other. Everyone knows who everyone is here, for better or for worse. How about you, Jay? I'm curious about your thoughts on this one. I've gone back and forth so many times on what survivor is and and this and that. And I I think that the thing that everyone needs to realize, and, you know, we've espoused it here on the podcast. And I think people come to their own sort of conclusions that it is, is that, you know, and, and even not even Borneo is like super pure in the sense that there were stuff going on, you know, backs back behind the scenes that we didn't know about nothing too, too bad, but this is a television show. And, it's tough because I feel like for the television show, we try to espouse this pure game of 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 this Darwinian, you know, forming an alliance and voting people out and then getting them to vote you a million dollars. And, and, and there's a purity to the rules of Survivor that I think that a lot of us who have been fans for such a long time sort of adhere to and go, gosh, this game, I tell you, you know, when people play this game, it really shows you something. And it's like, I don't know if many, many of these tons of seasons of Survivor really show you what we think it should show us because there's this television show element to it in the sense that people are playing for the television show and the television show wants certain things in order to become uh, entertaining and keep ad revenues and keep viewers and, and all those sorts of things. And so it becomes this murky mess as far as everything goes. And, and I don't know, I I mean, I think you're right in the sense that, yeah, these are returning players who know each other. And so it's not as, uh, as the game was intended as, as, you know, 16 to 20 strangers coming together of tribes and then, you know, whittling down all the way until there's one. But my, my, I guess my response to that would be, was it ever that pure? Mm -hmm. And, you know, at this point, season 20, the game 
as and the television show as we know it is so vastly different and evolved from the first couple of seasons of the show and you know you can say for the better or for the worse but i don't even know if it's for the better or the worse it just has evolved that's just how it's gone mm. it's just a completely different product at this time so i don't know i i i don't know how to really answer it other than it's just what it is at this point yeah, and that actually brings up something I was thinking of as you were saying that, that this is one of my criticisms with Heroes versus Villains. And again, I'm not saying this is a bad season, but there's this reason why I don't love the season as much as other people is that after all the big, you know, bombasticness of the first couple episodes, it really boils down to is the Micronesia Alliance getting back together? That's kind of a major subplot all throughout these episodes that the people don't want that to happen. And that's what happens when you cast so many people from one season in a returning player season that everyone's worried that they're going to get back together. And this is why I don't really find that interesting. Number one, I don't really love Micronesia like people do, but Micronesia was already retur- a returning player season to begin with. So we're like going two degrees off a of Survivor season now where they don't want all the returning players from a previous returning player season to dominate the game. So it gets, you're going so far away from like strangers playing against one another. And that's just one thing that I can see why some people might love that stuff. They love the legacy aspect and the returning player thing, but just, I just don't find all that to be that interesting, especially when again, Micronesia wasn't even solo players to begin with. So it's, well, I, I didn't never even thought about that until right now that this is the first really like third degree of separation season. But I, I think that there's a point in there, Mario, uh, you know, my long winded, you know, what is Survivor anymore sort of thing aside. It's what you talked about in the sense that, you know, there is gamesmanship and there's things that go on that we as the audience don't see. There's tons of things that go on there that we as the audience don't see. I'm sure every single contestant of Survivor that's done an interview has said something along the lines of you didn't see everything that went out there. I can't possibly begin to explain to you all the things that you didn't see that actually happened there on the island. And it they're probably right. There is. But, you know, we've heard certain things in the sense that, you know, when it's when it's a, a season of newbies that go out there and play the game, you know, they're not allowed to like speak or talk to each other until the game starts. Right. But some of them talk about how like over or on, you know, whatever transportation or whatever temporary lodging they set up you know, before the game starts. And even though they're not allowed to talk, sometimes people exchange sort of glances with each other mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to work with this person, you know, but but that's all very, even though we as, as an audience don't see that. And maybe these two people formed an alliance in the game because they sort of gave each other the head nod like the day before the, the game started. That's all very, very innocent. I'm not going to say it, it. You can understand that. Whereas with these all-star seasons, you know, after that sort of Lex, Tom, Cappy, Rob sort of stuff from Survivor All-Stars, people sort of got the memo as, as oh, if I'm a potential returnee, I should probably become friends and or know some other people that I think are going to be potential returnees. And maybe we can set up an alliance before we even get on the plane to go out there on the island. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. There's this not not just meta as far as what we see on the TV, but these people have been forming alliances with each other before the before it was they were even knew that they were going to be on the show and so you know not only do we not get to see the head nod like the day or two before the game starts we don't see the months and months of survivor parties and 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 reunions and all these sorts of things that the survivor contestants get to go to where they're literally forming alliances in the event that there will be a returnee season that they are on Mm -hmm. and so that does sort of turn me off in the sense that 
a lot of the stuff that we see, like maybe they'll give you some television reason as to why these people are in alliance. But really, it's because, you know, they were having beers one night sometime in the Hollywood Hills and said, hey, if we ever get on together, we should work together. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that is something that is specifically brought up in the episodes of the season. And this is one thing that I think a lot of people might not remember if they haven't watched this season in a while. Like right at the start of the season, there's a subplot that Tom and Colby and Stephanie, particular on the heroes, aren't really part of the Survivor community. They don't go to parties. They've kind of gone back to the real world. And Survivor has lured them back into the world of Survivor. And now all these legitimate legends from the early seasons are being thrown back into a world of idols and returning players and the Micronesia Alliance. And like, they're at a very severe disadvantage because they don't know these people. They don't hang out with them, and they are seen as outsiders. So it legitimately is a part of the storyline of the season that Tom, Stephanie, and Colby are just outsiders because they're not part of the community and they really have the deck stacked against them right from the start. And I, that's one thing that I think why another reason why I don't like returning player seasons, because everyone comes in there, there's huge advantages and disadvantages to who you've worked with in the past and how active you are in the community. Yeah. And I think that this is, I know people have been clamoring for years for an old school versus new school season of survivor the closest we might get is essentially the pre-merge of heroes versus villains here, mm -hmm. where especially on the heroes tribe, like you're saying, you have a group of people who played in this pre-idol era who are not necessarily keen on the machinations that go on and the cutthroat aspects of modern Survivor, and so there's a bit of a schism there, and also the fact that, you know, like you said, they're not necessarily part of the main social circles. Even someone like Jerry was super old school, but she also lives in L.A., so she's hanging out with these people all the time. And so, you know, it's understandable why she would get brought in. As an old school Survivor fan, it is a bit sad to see these first few episodes, especially, like you said, that Tom, Colby, and Stephanie Alliance attempting to get dismantled essentially through one person's very aggressive actions. It's, mm -hmm. it's not fun to see, but I suppose, like you said, that's the name of the game. A lot of the game of Survivor with returning players is played off the island. And if you're not playing that part, you're starting from a severe disadvantage. Right. I'm not I'm not necessarily saying they shouldn't do that. You know, I mean, dude, game the system. And yeah. people who go on Survivor, it's it's mostly a whole bunch of alphas trying to, you know, get the next advantage as it goes. So I think it's completely fair game and completely within the rules. But it's sort of frustrating uh, when you try to think about, oh, you know, these guys are going to come on the island and they're going to play the game of Survivor. It's like a lot of it's done been played before they even got on the boat. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm especially sympathetic to especially Tom and Stephanie. And those, like I've keep, I said that in part one many times, I've already said it in this one, that those two were such huge gets to bring back in the 20th season and they really had no chance. And that's why I'm very... I don't know. That's why I can never really love this season like a lot of people do, because those two in particular, their stories really kind of break my heart. And it, I know a lot of people don't like Stephanie, but I'm very sympathetic to her story here because she was just DOA the minute she got there. There's nothing she was going to be able to do to get, get into this game. Well, her shoulder was DOA very quickly in the game, if that's what you mean. <laughs> yes. All but right, I mean, I, you know, you have to I know we're, I know we're delaying and we need to get into this episode. I, I understand. But I think that. You know, we, we talk about in a normal season of Survivor, you know, if you've got 16 to 20 contest, let's say you've got 20 contestants on a season of Survivor. You know, we've talked about how like with of the 20 contestants of Survivor, there's about eight of them that you can basically say they have no shot of winning right mm -hmm. off the bat. And when you have a season of 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 returnees like Heroes versus Villains is it's tough because these are our all stars. These are our I don't want to say idols, but th these are the people that that have have 
taken this game of Survivor and made it entertaining for us as fans. They've become sort of legends in their own right, but yet you have to do the math. There's 20 people on this island right now, and there's probably half of them that just have no shot at winning this game. Yeah. And what's funny is Sandra is one of those. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay, let's bring this up. There's a lot of comparisons to all-stars and heroes versus villains, why were they similar, why they're different. And this is a question that people have asked me a lot. Was there a bias against winners in heroes versus villains? Because if you know your all-star history, you know no winner was ever going to be allowed to win Survivor again in 2004. But now we're 12 seasons ahead. And I mean, I don't know if you guys will disagree with me. I'm sure we're not going to delve too much into this. But no, there was absolutely no bias against winners. I don't think Sandra was seen as like one of the biggest threats. Despite what they talk about poverty, I don't think she was seen as one of the biggest threats. I think it almost feels like everyone kind of enters this on an equal playing field, which is so much different from All-Stars in that point of view. Well, also the fact that right after All-Stars, you have someone like Rupert winning a million dollars despite not winning the season, I Mm -hmm. think muddies the water a bit in terms of hey, just because someone's a winner doesn't necessarily mean there's someone you need to get out right out of the gate. You know, we have four winners playing in this season, and they all do something at least pretty pretty good over the course of this season. But yeah, you don't have this Jenna Lewis figure who has, you know, made her stump <laughs> position of, of uh, all right, we all need to. Yeah, this is back when JT was regarded as one of the best winners ever. But you don't have a figure essentially stumping for the non-winners uh, approach. I think everyone was more about, you know, the icons of the game rather than, you know, let's get out all the big players and winners first. Right. You know, I think that you've hit the nail on the head in the sense that with Survivor All-Stars, it was still about like this trying to become the top of this heap of survivors, right? There was only like, what, like 50, 60-ish survivors at that point? Mm-hmm. Or no, there was more than that. But there's there about 100 survivors at that point. And, you know, to win Survivor All-Stars meant, you know, you were at the top of this very I- exclusive mountain. And now we're in season 20. There's hundreds of hundreds of survivor players And I would almost argue to say, yes, people still want to win the game and win the million dollars. A million dollars is life-changing money, no matter who you are. I understand that fact, and I do not want to sit here and tell you I'm belittling a million dollars because I will never see a million dollars in my lifetime. But I think for a lot of the contestants that go back on Survivor, it's not totally just about winning the million dollars. It's about – you know, there's something else at stake that I think, you know, yeah, you want to win, but it's it's not a matter of, you know, oh, we need to take these winners and, you know, they've already had their moment in the sun or they've already had their million dollars and it's it's our turn now. It's it's more along the lines of you want to you want to best everyone and you'll use anyone in the game in order to do that. And so I, I feel like the not that the game's evolved past the million dollars of the winner, but that was not, I think, in Heroes versus Villains. It was not like we need to target the winners. It was we need to target, you know, seeing myself better in the legacy of survivor yeah and of course let's not neglect to mention that in 2004 or 3 you win survivor that's a life-changing event you're now a celebrity you're writing celebrity columns in newspapers and magazines like richard they wanted to host saturday night live at one point like it was a big deal when you won survivor in those first seven eight seasons that was a life-changing thing by now we've had so many winners like I don't know if Bob Crowley was actually a big celebrity at any point. So it's 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 not as life changing when you win Survivor. So yeah, there's the stakes are just different. Right, and the fact that also the non-winners that are even coming back are these momentous figures. You have people like Colby who were able to make transformative careers. I know that Russell is coming right off of his season, so he doesn't necessarily know the acclaim that's going to be around him. But these are people who, despite not winning, 
have these reputations that precede them. So, yeah. you know, they're, it's, it's less about the placement attached to their previous showing, and it's more so about them as a personality. Yeah, I, I yes. can't get over when I watch Heroes versus Villains how much they treat Boston Rob like a former winner. And I'm like, but he wasn't. But it's really funny. They, have, they treat him with that level of respect and awe. Well, I wonder if it's because, you know, they really have this path sketched out for him. These sort of, like, uh, dueling paths of JT and Rob, where Rob is the villain who becomes the hero, and JT is the hero who becomes the villain. I mean, that's too salacious of a storyline that you can't, like, not put it front and center, right? Especially knowing that Rob goes out after seven episodes or so. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was talking about the way the other players treat them. Like, Coach is fawning over Boston Rob, and I can't imagine Coach fawning over anybody. So it's just like the other players are treating them like they're all winners and celebrities. I think in lieu of the focus being on getting these, getting the winners out, like, that that conversation is, is quickly replaced with um, the, the thing we talked about a little bit ago about the connections who knows who, and it's much more figuring out of how do people's past play into this season rather than simply being, you know, someone who's won the game before. I think that theme that you talk about, how like Boston Rob's the villain who's, you know, going to try to be heroic, JT is the the hero that's going to try to be the villain. But then you got, like we talked about with Santa, with the whole, you know, I'm a villain. Wait, I'm not a villain. I'm a hero. I think that this identity behind heroes and villains is a theme in the show, and not just a theme because Jeff shoehorns it a million times. Yeah. But I, 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 I of this meta season, the fact that you have this meta season with returning players and give them this like broad uh, sort of blanket of heroes and villains and having them wrestle with that, I think is is an interesting sort of insertion of a theme as 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 opposed to like you're a millennial, you know, or something like that. Where whereas this one, it actually sort of gets them to think because these guys are so into their characters and into their legacy that you enter the thing and that talks about their legacy and then they're just going to go wild with it speaking yeah. of wrestling <laughs> yeah well i was going to say one more thing before we get to the wrestling that it's funny that one player really does sum up what you guys just said that that's a big theme of the season people who are heroes play like villains and people who are villains play like heroes and again i got to point out what a fantastic narrator tom westman is because he's the one that articulates that right at the start of the season that says even though we've been labeled heroes or villains, I don't necessarily think everyone's going to you know, stick to the same path that they played before. They may want to take a difference. So he, he articulates that very well, and it's just, just one more thing I like pointing out what an amazing character he was. Well, I think he also said that because, again, there are a lot of non-winners there. So he's saying, you know, it didn't work out so well for them the first time, so they're probably going to you know, t- uh, do the exact opposite, which isn't necessarily true, but he does bring up, <laughs> he does bring up a good point of like, you know, if you try one technique and it doesn't get you the win, try something else. Unless you're Sandra. Yeah, or Russell. <laughs> Just That's do the true. same thing again. <laughs> or right. Rupert. Yeah, or Rupert. Any, any Survivor math equation, Rupert is pie. He's constant. He will not change. He will not change. I also have to give a sh- shout-out to my man, Boston Rob. I know I'm not like the biggest Rob fanboy, but I feel like there's a reason. The dude is gold every time mm-hmm. he's on TV, and you cannot deny it. Whether you like him or hate him as a character, he is gold character. And I just love, you know, right off the bat here, when Jeff's doing chat with all of them and he talks about boston rob you know hey 
what's up over there on the villains tribe, Bob? And Rob just goes, I'm a villain. <laughs> yeah. With that, I, with that smirk, with that, with that Rob smirk. And you're just like, ah, this, I, okay. I'm invested. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. I have such a love hate with Rob. I love him in Marques. just like every minute. I can't stand him in all stars like every minute. And then heroes versus villains. I'm back on the good side with him again. And again, it's just, he's such a good narrator and he's just very sharp as coach points out. Rob is like a very quick witted and he gets things. Yeah. I just neat. Very, I'm very excited to see Rob back here. All right. Before we get into the first challenge, I just want to say one more thing. The music in this opening scene, how the heroes and the villains both have their own theme songs. Yes. And it's something you might not notice unless you're paying attention to it. But the villains music in particular as their helicopter lands and it's almost like the Imperial March. It's just great music. So anybody who's watching this episode, pay attention to that villain music. All right. And with that, I think we can actually go to the first challenge. So we've now got six minutes into the first episode. <laughs> one hour into this podcast. <laughs> We're now four hours into our heroes versus villains coverage, and we've almost got to the first challenge. Oh my god! Well, let's 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 talk about this because this is intense. And I know a lot of people talk about how Schmergen Brawl gets retired in this particular season just because it causes wave upon wave of injuries. But I think something that gets lost sometimes is they still do you know the physical altercation challenge, but they do it exclusively in the water after mm -hmm. this. So I feel like this challenge this particular iteration might be the reason why they no longer do it on land, considering that when you're wet, you're much more slippery and less liable to break several appendages. Yeah, we have two injuries in this challenge, especially the very first matchup. We end up with the, one of the most iconic characters in Survivor injured. <laughs> and then we got uh, there's several more near injuries. You see a lot of when you watch this challenge, people's whacking their heads against each other. It's like, God, that must have hurt. Okay, so for people who haven't seen it, although I feel silly saying that about heroes versus villains, but if you don't remember this challenge, this is the one where two people on each tribe have to run out and dig up a bag in the sand and then basically beat the shit out of each other until one person standing and can bring the bag back to the start. This is the uh, Memorial Bob Dog slash Ruth Marie challenge from uh, Panama. People may remember from that. Yeah, and, uh, on, on that note, all the challenges this season are going to be rehashes of previous challenges that have been done in Survivor seasons past, and that's mm -hmm. purposeful. How do you guys feel about that? <clears throat> Classic Survivor challenges, Mike, not repeat. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, I thought it was a neat little throwback to their history. I had no problem with that. I like it. They keep it consistent. They say every time they mention uh, who in this cast did this challenge. So I thought it was a very nice, consistent way to uh, address the and, – and we'll talk about it as we get later on. They do some really cool throwbacks to some like one-time challenges that were never repeated before um, this season. So, uh, yeah, I appreciated their uh, inclusion of this. Okay, at the risk of uh, skipping over too much here, we will jump right ahead into the challenge here. And again, it's a reward challenge. It's literally five minutes into the season, and they'll be thrown into this hugely uh, physical challenge. And what's the reward? The reward is, reward is fire. And so here we go. Two against two, square off, go out, beat each other up, and whoever's left standing wins the point. First one, for the heroes, we have Stephanie and Sari against Parvati and Danielle for the villains. And this is the one I said earlier where they go out there, they, you know, beat the crap out of each other. And within a couple minutes, Courtney not only loudly announces that she hopes Parvati breaks Stephanie's shoulder, but then Parvati literally does dislocate Stephanie's shoulder. So it's a wonderful moment for the villains. And, you know, the producers were loving that. Like, we actually have footage of Courtney cheering on a broken shoulder and then it happens. So you knew they loved that. Do you think Courtney was, was like, shouting out all body parts? <laughs> yeah, just so just hopes one of them will stick. <laughs> Clavicle. 
<laughs> well, that's the thing, though. Apparently, so Dalton Ross was on set for this, and according to him, this was not the first matchup. So I think ah. that the editors might have rearranged things because this is such a great display of the theme of the villains, quote-unquote, playing dirty. That It would make sense to shuffle this towards the front. That makes sense. I, I like that theory. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, I didn't know that. The, there's a whole write-up in uh, Reality Blurred about it, um, so you can go back and dig that one up. Uh, what I like about this, too, is we get a chance to introduce Candace. So n- not only are we going to introduce, you know, we don't introduce Candace as, you know, the woman who mutinied because, okay, that would make her a villain, which she's not. So we have to find a way to in- uh, introduce her. Okay, let's just stick her in here. We'll have her introduce herself by saying, I'm a medical student. <laughs> it's, like, so, like, randomly <laughs> thrown in there. It just, like, goes, shows Candace for the first time. I'm a medical student, and that looked really bad. <laughs> like, that's our introduction to Candace, like one of the 20 greatest of all time. <laughs> so much sage wisdom from her in this first episode. That's great. She also cursed out Brad Culpepper. I think they cut that part out, though. All right, so the first point the villains win with Stephanie not only having her shoulder dislocated, but I point out badass Stephanie stands there and lets them pop it back in. Oh, uh, I... with, a, with a nice, like, crunching Foley sound effect from Survivor. Can you pop, mate? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad I beat Jay to that joke. He was going to go for it, I'm sure. All right. I mean, <laughs> you, you could beat me to that joke all day because <laughs> I am not a father. That oh, is we're going the worst dad joke I've ever seen in my life. All right, you okay? He's thrown down the gauntlet. Okay, you've asked for it, Jay. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> you're my new Paul. I'm gonna make you my bitch on this one. Uh, uh-huh. Oh, oh, you're you're now going to make me your bitch? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Only yes. it took only oh. six years, and Mario has finally decided to make Jay his bitch. <laughs> yes. Revenge is I, a it just best served with an announcement that it's going to happen. I wonder what Mario thought our relationship was before this. <laughs> I was uncle. I thought we talked. I was uncle from the start. Come on. You two really are like the Colby and Jerry of the historians. <laughs> you were uncle. Gee, I just I said that like an hour ago. God, what is going on? I just wanted to prove that I do listen to what you say, despite all evidence of the contrary. I mean, that's great, but you still never email me. All right. Well, I'm wearing the white hat, so fuck you. Uh <laughs> All right. So, so anyway, the villains win the first point, and then we got Amanda and JT, and they win for the heroes. We go back and forth with the Vero, the villains and the heroes. And man, this I forgot how many iconic scenes are just in this challenge alone. Where we have the next one, uh, I'm not. I'm just gonna skip the details, but we it winds up with Coach Frog marching Colby to his mad for the villains. Again, and it's just like it's. Sad, but it's a fantastic indicator of poor Colby's lost puppy journey through Samoa in Heroes vs. Villains, where this poor man, regarded as a survivor god in the turn of the century, is now essentially being dry-humped to a loss (laughs) by a man who calls himself the Dragon Slayer. I think Tyson says it best when he says that, you know, it's, it's essentially questioning everything that we know about Colby up to this point. All right, two things about this, because I am the number one coach historian is that Coach is actually a really big dude. He's like 6'3", 6'4". If you look at him next to everybody else in the cast, he's significantly bigger than Colby. So it really wasn't that an embarrassment of a loss for Colby. Although I do have to point out, in all fairness, if you look very closely, there's a scene where Coach grabs him by the nuts. So that's a very that's a uh, strength and honor move right there where Coach the Dragon Slayer grabs Colby by the balls in an attempt to steer him more. So just watch for that next time you watch this uh, challenge. 
And what shouldn't be lost here is while all this is going on, uh, Russell almost breaks Tom's foot <laughs> off as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, Russell is literally just has Tom in a wrestling hold and he's trying to break his leg. I, I wrote in my notes here that um, that Russell looked like a little demon that just was like playing with like Tom for fun. Just as yeah. Tom like groans in pain. He just has his like leg up in the air and he's like, <laughs> and Jeff and Jeff has to get all, you know, kindergarten on him and go play fair play fair so this is a record here where russell manages to lose a jury vote in the first six minutes of the game so very proud of russell hans mario best player never win best player such a strategist well then i'm assuming he wanted to separate tom because he figured that'd be two jury votes right tom and tom's leg (laughs) yes that's two <laughs> All right. So so we have coach frog stomping Colby over and then my favorite part of it it was Col- coach has to do his little celebration afterwards where everyone wants to hug him but they have to wait until he does his little poses and hits all his little marks so it's like ah! <laughs> so just the legend of coach of coach continues here. All right. So after this we have another iconic moment where Sugar meets up with Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I'm telling you, there's like 12 funny phone 115 injuries from this one episode, and we have like three just from this challenge. I just, I, I, I've probably mentioned it before on the sh- show, but your write up to this is like, is the, the the line you start off your your entry with. I always think about every time I see the scene or anything like this comes up about how you say the uh, one of the really big advantages of returning player seasons is you get two people who have no business interacting with each other. There's, there's no reason why sugar from Gabon and Sandra from Pearl Island should have any, any reason to interact, but because of the situation they do and it's glorious. Very, very good. I'm very impressed that you remember that. I don't remember writing that. So well, you did. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it made an impression on me. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Sandra earns her villain title by not only does she, well, she, what does she do? She, flings uh, Candace down at one point. She throws Sandra, she shows Sugar down, and then at a certain point towards the end of the challenge, Sandra doesn't really have a, an opportunity to do anything to Sugar to keep her from running away with the bag, so she just rips her top off and throws it aside. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's like a, t- a two-step process. Like, one, Sugar's, like, down, laying on, lying on her stomach, and then, you know, Sandra just unclips it, and then it's, you know, several seconds later, as Sugar stands up, that Sandra has to grab the strap and completely yank it off. So it was not just, like, a, you know, one aggressive move like this was like several steps to uh to get sugar topless but it was worth it because we get the iconic triple blur where after sugar wins she flips sandra the bird with both her fingers and so her two fingers are blurred and her chest is blurred and fantastic jeff probes i don't know if it's a dick moment but him saying sugar gives up vanity and scores for the heroes yeah, I cannot believe I didn't use that triple blur as the icon for the funny one fifteen. That should have been the picture for version two. That was like just a great one of the all time great survivor screenshots of Sugar double middle fingering Sandra, beloved hero Sandra. <laughs> Such a great interaction between characters. So let it never let it be said that Sugar has no highlights in her one episode of Heroes versus Villains. All right, so we get to the end of the challenge and. Uh, who wins this? The uh, the heroes win this, right? Because James ends up getting past Boston Rob. But my toe is broke. Yeah, and Rupert gets his toe broke. So we have Stephanie injured, we have Sugar topless, and we have Rupert with a toe that's broke. 
<laughs> so I love how he just he talks to again poor doctor. I think this was still Ramona coming out to have to investigate, and Candace probably just hovering, saying that she's a medical student again. Uh, but Rupert being like, I felt it cracking inside of me. <laughs> Rupert is just a fantastic soundbite machine of dourness. So I think putting him in a very precarious position with breaking one of his body parts is probably pretty much the optimal position you want to get Rupert Grimm driven from the very beginning of this season. My toe should be an I. Now it's a J. <laughs> yeah, why, why is he describing it with letters? <laughs> well, what, what do you expect? From, that, that's that, that's how people who drink two percent cow's milk to describe things, Mike. Jeez, <laughs> J. I've never heard of such a letter. <laughs> so much rot and alphabet. I was like putting out Rupert in uh, Russell's kindergarten class here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the heroes win the first challenge, and it's just a, a a melee out there that everyone's been injured, and so they gather up the wounded. It's like a civil war battlefield afterwards. <laughs> they have to cut off legs and amputate stuff and drag people back. So all the wounded people go back to camp, and we go to the villains' camp now. It's literally the first scene in the in the uh, in the season here, and here we go. Russell starts telling us that he's the best player ever, and I can't tell you how much I missed this. Well, yeah, I think that for all we talked about how people don't necessarily have the attitude, unlike All-Stars, of, okay, I got to be the best of the best, so I've got to beat the best players. Russell's basically saying, I'm going to win again, and so therefore that's going to make me the best player ever. You know what will help that? Doing the exact same thing that got me in trouble the first time. Yeah. Although he does tell us that he's Michael Jordan, so he's above the sport. That's how iconic he is at this point. I mean, he does look like one of those cartoons from Space Jam. <laughs> he kind of does. So right off the bat, all the girls on the villains are like, all right, which two egos are going to square off? Who's going who's gonna to fight against who for leadership of the tribe? And immediately we go into Russell versus Boston Rob, which, again, for people who haven't seen this season in a while, is a very significant subplot for about six episodes. It will be Rob versus Russell. And an entire season. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And a reunion show. Don't forget the reunion show, too. Uh, I mean, this is a really fun thing, though, because... There's some really interesting pairing where Russell goes to Danielle and Parvati specifically to make another Dumbass Girls Alliance 2.0 electric boogaloo. Uh, But Parvati actually has a very similar Natalie White-like mentality where she says in confessional, like, I know Russell's saying the exact same thing to everybody, but I'd rather be with him than against him, which... We just talked accolades about Natalie White's final Tribal Council performance where she makes that very astute point. And to have Parvati pointed out again, it's displaying some winner-esque tendencies for Parvati, even if it doesn't end up being the case. The fact that she's essentially mirroring the actions of the person who just won before this season. (laughs) All right, I got to point out one of the all-time great editor fuck you moments where they show disrespect to their players. And it's this scene right here where Russell's going to go put together his dumbass girl alliance. So he goes to Danielle and Parvati. The two he approaches, Danielle and Parvati, remember that. And this is his plan. He's going to get the three of them. In the next episode, in episode two in the previously on, the read that Probst's narration is, Russell goes around and makes an alliance with anyone who will listen to what he says. He also brings in Parvati. <laughs> like, well, fuck you, Danielle. I just love the way Propes narrates that. Listen for that. It's one of the all-time great FU moments right there where they completely crap on Danielle. Today I learned that Danielle was a contestant on Heroes vs. Villains. Was she a med student? (laughs) She didn't even get a line like that. Like, literally no nod to anything she's ever done in the past. I I feel like 
even though she goes further, I, I feel like you're totally right in the sense that like we're making fun of Candace. It's like, oh, heroes versus villains and Candace. It's like heroes and Candace. Also, there's Danielle. <laughs> I know. Like, you, like you how easy would it have biggest... been to put in a quote of like, I I made it to the final two. I was so close to winning this game. Like this time, like this is my chance. Like, nope, we're not even gonna acknowledge you were a finalist. Yeah. We're not gonna acknowledge any, that you played with Sari before. Like nothing. We're not even gonna touch it. I am dumbass girl number one. That's my official <laughs> role in this season. That's what that uh, the the Japan the the kanji tattoo on her back. Uh, her, that's what that means. I thought it meant meatball. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, she is not a med student, but she did have some sort of medical procedure on her chest in between seasons. So there is that. Hang on, I know I know a lot about this. Did someone punch you in the boob? I know how to take care of this. <laughs> All right. So we've met the villains and we got Russell doing the exact same thing he always does. He's going to stand up to Boston Rob and get his girls on alliance. And now we go over to the heroes. And uh, let's see here. What are they? They're just talking about how it's great to be back and it's all exciting. And they vote on where to build their shelter and like sugars like, oh, with the with the two older gentlemen, please lead us and have a sage advice. And so it's, it's but they always they have their own little theme song, the heroes, and they work together. And it's a nice, nice little scene here. And they yeah, she's, what are they, sugar's already chickens? imagining ways that she could like give idols to them and force fire making with them. She already envisions them all both in the final three. Oh, of course. Yeah. And Rupert with the iconic quote, it's good to be a hero. And then uh, this is where we start a bit of the chicken saga, where the heroes just happen to have chickens walk into the camp, and they, they're they able to catch them, which is, uh, again, like, there's a really fun edit in this episode where it seems like the heroes are excelling and the villains are just a bunch of little shits, but who ends up victorious in the end of this episode? That's a good point. Yeah, the, the heroes will have a, a, a muddied fate in the future, but they do start very strongly. Now I got to point out again, uh, Colby. Colby has a lot of the narration here, and I just I cannot resist pointing out, as always, what a great narrator Colby is. Just how he's good at just phrasing things and just identifying the major plot lines that are all going on, and he's laying it out very well. So just very. Uh, Colby will take a lot of crap from us and pretty much anybody who's ever talked about heroes versus villains, but always pay attention to his narration. He's he's like Boston Rob that he became famous for a reason. There's a reason these guys became very successful in Survivor because they can speak well. It's almost like I want to see him host his own show. That's right. But with more guns. <laughs> more guns. Yes. All right. So, so hey, we fit. Fin- top Shot's just around the corner. Are we going to do Top Shot Historians? Yeah, Top Shot we're doing after this season. We're doing top, the. How many seasons <laughs> did Top Shot have? Was it one or was it one? I think it was like six, actually. Six? Wow. They, they had like an all star season, Mario. <laughs> They're fucking Top Shot All Stars, really? Or than shooters. Okay. They have, like, returning players and, like, pregame alliances and stuff. All right, uh, here we go. So we go back to the villains. Now it's night number one at the villains camp. And as per the contract, what they do is they all sit around and mock Rupert. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I mean, I love this stuff. I'm really glad that they <laughs> steered into the curve here because that's what we do is we mock Rupert. So the villains are basically doing our job as they're all sitting around and, yeah, Mato, <laughs> Randy's sitting around the campfire being the star, just mocking Rupert every chance he gets. I wonder if that's going to come back in a, in a future episode. Oh, boy. And I love the fact that all of them just relish in the fact that everyone is so injured. But, of course, Coach, in his stupid, inappropriate coach way, says, everyone thought Colby was going to have his way with me, which, 
<laughs> okay, considering the position that coach took Colby in, like, stop stop insinuating things, coach. You're not helping your case, especially considering that you apparently have eyes for another. <laughs> All right, great quote, coach quote right here. I have to point out just so uh, so perfect for his character when coach is talking about how they're all talking about how I frog marched Colby over to the well, the mat, and his exact words are, the tribe was still talking about it long after I'd forgotten it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever, coach. <laughs> I completely didn't cross my mind that I just won that challenge in a heroic way. Everyone else was talking about it. I had forgotten. Didn't even cross my mind. <laughs> Civilizations have come and gone. This game is now dust, is what it was, but yet the words are still echoing. <laughs> yeah, so, again, this is the season, and I've said this before, that Coach in Token Chains was not really a fan favorite. Everybody hated him. But by the time Heroes vs. Villains came around, everyone kind of realized what a goofball he was and how you weren't supposed to take him seriously. So everything that comes out of his mouth this season is gold because he's right there in that sweet spot where he's a comic character and he doesn't quite realize it yet. So, uh, that, that, but that's what happened if you ask. What would happen if you asked Coach to use hyperbole? Well, it depends on when you asked him. If you had asked him back then, he would have loved it. Nowadays, he's much more cognizant of how he comes off now. So it's 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 a whole different thing. But yeah, it was a uh, there's one uh, moment in a, I think the third episode where he's like, "I hate to pontificate, but," and then he starts pontificating, which is just such a coach thing to do. To be fair, I think he had forgotten he had been pontificating until people were talking about it long yeah. after he had forgotten. <laughs> Everyone was talking about my legend. I had forgotten that I was a legend. All right, so uh, so we have we have Jerry and Coach flirting here. We're gonna oh have a very odd God. odd showmance <laughs> that nobody was expecting. Could you ever have imagined this? This is this is ridiculous. Yeah. Another example of two people who had no business uh, ever interacting. Um, but I I love it when um, what does she say to him or he, about she knows his mantra and he's like like how did you know that that was my mantra. <laughs> like as if it's some big secret like he just was on tv like <laughs> less than a year ago with like all of his crap and like how did you know if, if this is survivor porn these are our two like very stilted romantic leads who have no chemistry whatsoever but they're pushed front and center <laughs> and it's not like it's not like, like oh like i like i i did some research on you i saw you i like i i heard about you <laughs> okay that, there was a that, secret that scene some character development for porn there, Mike. <laughs> Listen, you, there's you gotta you gotta build the story. You gotta get people invested. But what I love about this villain's tribe in particular is that they're all little shit stirrers. And so you have the next day like this grease esque moment where Russell's like, ah, you should you should go uh, make out with her and find love. And then you have like Courtney and Sandra weaving Paul Franz being like, yeah, I saw you uh, making eyes with the Dragon Slayer. So I just love that they are. Fanning the flames of the most ridiculous quote-unquote romance Survivor has ever seen. Can you think of a more random example of two characters from different seasons just hooking up in a returning player season? Like, I was just thinking, who would be more ridiculous than Jerry and Coach? I was thinking, like, Helen Glover and the mayor of Slamtown, if those two hooked up. That would, like, wow, that would be a fun one. Like, can you think of anybody more random? How about you, the listeners at home? Who would you think? Yeah, we'll leave a blank space of air for you to yell out your answers right now. (laughs) 
oh look we have a romance between rudy and dina well that was that was cute that's a nice portmanteau though rudina <laughs> rudina there you go they would have the cutest instagram page all right yeah so day two on the villains everyone's just asking or trying to goad coach and jerry into hooking up and there's a great scene where Jerry's talking to Coach and how she likes him. And while well, she's eating a banana, which is not suggestive at all. And it's just so, so many fun little character moments. <laughs> is, is that part of banana etiquette? Don't eat the banana while talking about hooking up with somebody? <laughs> well, specifically Coach, I think, would be part of the etiquette. <laughs> all right. So we go to the heroes day two. So the, the villains is all about the romance. It's Boston Rob versus Russell. And you got these showmances starting up. And then over on the heroes at day two, this is where everyone's past relationship is starting to spook everyone, right? Yes, and this is where we also get the emergence of Sith Lord JT uh, turning to the dark side. Yeah, explain that to people because that's I kind of I didn't keep real good notes here. This is where JT basically decides he's going to be a villain and he's going to make an alliance with everybody this time. Yeah, so JT unintentionally pulling a page from Russell's book, but instead of going for the dumbass girls, he's going for the big-ass guys. Uh, you know, he makes his first alliance with James. He says, you've got to keep the, the physical threats together. And he's just sort of trying to bring in a bunch of people together, and he remarks later on that he's like, you know what? Everyone saw the way that I played the first time. I can't do the same thing because I will not be nearly as successful. So I'm just going to flip to the complete opposite thing. Uh, and I don't really care about saving my hero name, which allowed him allowed him to be a lot less tenderfoot than some of the other heroes. Unlike, uh, you know, with the exception of Rupert, who is pretty tenderfoot himself, given the J toe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So again, the, the heroes tribe J toe. It's a J toe. What kind of anime are we doing right now? My favorite, my my favorite moment from the sequence is uh, Colby and Candace connecting, um, and uh, Colby asking about a, uh, do you know these people? Like, <laughs> yeah, seriously, like, do you know them? And Candace is like trying to be coy, but he's like, no, seriously, like, do you know them? <laughs> Who are they? Wait, where am I? What, what is survivors? going on? <laughs> I always remember that just reminds me of a random reality TV thing. Did you guys ever see Celebrity Mole Yucatan, the second one? The Dennis Rodman one? The Dennis Rodman one. Yeah, there's uh... a scene. The very first like episode of Celebrity Mole Yucatan is Dennis Rodman just loudly announcing to everybody, I don't even care who the mole is. I'm not going to do well on the test. I don't care. I'm just here to have fun. And they're like, Dennis isn't going to do well on Celebrity Mole. <laughs> and so that's what I think with Colby, not even knowing who he's playing against. And you can just see, I'm just waiting for the narrator. Colby's not going to do real well this season. You do have some gameplay from Tom here as well, though, where Tom and Stephanie come back together and they contemplate bringing in Colby and JT. And Tom specifically seeks out JT. I think maybe he's still under the all-stars-esque mentality of winners getting targeted early. So he says, mm-hmm. like, hey, if, I, if we go to the finals, they have to vote for one of us to give us a million dollars. I mean, you could essentially copy their fate and paste it onto the other set of winners on the other tribe, but it's an interesting conversation. All right, yeah. Unfortunately, the hero's subplot is never as interesting as the villain's. It's never going to be at any point. So let's go back to the villains here. And this is where we have Boston Rob. He is discovered a discrepancy in the way Survivor was six years ago versus how it is now, in that now nobody wants to do work. There's no uh, emphasis on survival skills like building shelter, building fire. So Rob is very frustrated with this new group of players that he's with, and he's like, I'm on the buffoon tribe again. It's going to be terrible. 
And basically, he will take it upon himself to do all the work, build the shelter, get the fire started. And so he basically, what, he starts the fire, gets it going, and people start fawning over Rob and how helpful he is. Oh, wow, Rob's got skills. And this, of course, pisses off Russell to no end that people like Rob. <laughs> yeah, and we get an interesting uh, name drop here of Amber in his confessional of, my wife told me, have patience, Amber, I'm trying, which... Uh, I just wouldn't ex- – it's it's weird when they sort of name drop in confessionals because they almost never do it, especially outside of the season. But she's a part of Survivor history, so it's a nice little nugget that we're able to digest. I thought he was talking about the little sparks that came out of the fire. <laughs> he does make some embers, um, some hot embers later on here. And again – a fantastic lackadaisical uh, attitude from Randy of like, we're going to make fire eventually. We don't need to spend our efforts on it now. Okay, so let's uh, ping pong back to the heroes. And this is another scene where Rupert's trying to catch fish and Kent's trying to start a fire. And he really is can't do anything. Apparently his toe is hurting him from starting a fire. I'm not sure how that works, but I, I got the toe. It won't work with the flint. <laughs> he like somehow wait, ruins half the flint, right, Candace? This, this, this whole sequence is one that I never really remember that much, but every time I've rewatched um, Heroes versus Villains, it's gotten funnier and funnier and funnier, uh, and the editing things they do, like it has really gotten to be one of my favorite scenes of the whole season. By far, the the best part is Rupert's Yay. When he comes back and sees that the fire is lit, it is the worst yay, I the least excitable yay I've ever heard in my life. And I had to rewind it like three or four times when I was rewatching it this most recent time because it's so, again, just so dour that Rupert's just already in his most miserable. He's already at rotten death on day one. What, is that, what does that mean for Rupert here? Yeah, so what, J, yeah, JT starts the fire and emasculates him, and then they end up, I think, does JT catch the fish? I don't know, but so really, Rupert learns very quickly he's obsolete. He's not quite a rock star like he used to be. All I right. mean, Israeli Survivor, his, 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 uh, on, Israeli Survivor has happened by now. Like, it, that just, like, boggles my mind that, like, at some point, Rupert should realize that he's not super great at all this, and yet he just, he, it's just, he, he's just gonna do his thing. <laughs> and it, it it's sad, but at the same time, it's really refreshing, and it and it's very comforting to know that no matter what is happening in my life, Rupert is gonna always feel the same way about Survivor. <laughs> I love when it comes to a head at tribal council in a couple episodes when Probes is like, "You keep voting out the strong guys," and Rupert's like, "Yeah, I know, but I made a promise." And Jeff's like, "You know that's making the tribe worse." I know. <laughs> Listen, don't do it. <laughs> voting is hard to do with a broke toe. <laughs> I got a okay. Yeah, Rupert, he really gets shit on a lot of this season. Although, my again, toe yeah. is not a I. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, Jeff, it is a J. <laughs> Sean lost my toe into ocean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so Rupert will have some highlights later in the season. Fooling Russell is a fantastic one, but it might take a while to get up to a Rupert highlight. All right, so here we go. One of the high, one of the benefits of having a two-hour episode is now we get the famous tree, tree. Excuse me. <laughs> now Whoa. we get the famous tree over the water scene. Uh, this is, I mean, Paul, what you essentially ascribe to the fire making scene, I have to ascribe to this. I fell in love with this scene from the very first time <laughs> I saw it. It's just, it's so well done between. Uh, you know, so there's a big coconut tree extending out over the water, and they're like, hey, we should get palm leaves from it. And Rob says, you know what? I know someone who's so full of themselves, they have to go up and do it. Cut to a slow-motion Farrah Fawcett-esque shot of Coach. And it's just, it's 
it's all just so, so good. And again, this if they did an hour-long episode, this would have to be cut out, which is a damn shame, because it might be one of the greatest scenes in Survivor history. And it's not only perfect for Coach, it's perfect for Boston Rob, it's perfect for Sandra. We learn so much about their little dynamic and just their interaction style, just from watching them talk here. Where again, yeah, Coach climbing up the tree, and Sandra and Boston Rob on the beach placing bets over whether he's going to make it. And Sandra, of course, so blunt that Sandra cannot sugarcoat anything. Rob's like, I think he's going to make it. And Sandra's like, well, when he falls, at least it'll be in the water. <laughs> like, I always love that she immediately knows he's going to fall. But if he falls there, he might be okay. <laughs> Again, if she was fantasizing about pushing him out of the helicopter, I think that it's, it's in the realm of possibilities. But I just love that. So he decides to back down. And so when he comes back, Rob says, I bet you do, you would make it. And Sandra just completely buzzkills her being like, I bet that you would fall in the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, let's always let it be said that this move, this scene, it seems frivolous and like a character scene, but it does foreshadow Sandra winning the season because they do, they do mention here that Sandra wins the bet, and she's like, make it out to Sandra the winner from Boston Bob the loser. <laughs> and for people who don't know, apparently, Boston Bob was for some reason like a nickname they came up with him around the, the, uh, the campfire. I don't know. You guys might know this better than me, but even in his final words, Randy even says, you know, I, I shot a, a warning shot around across Bob's bow. So like there, what is the, how did they become up with Boston Bob? You know, Paul, you got to know this. Mm, I haven't heard about where exactly the Bob part came from. Jesus, Paul, let me hold on. I'm going to uh, see if I can get Renee on the line here. I'll let you know if I can, uh, if I can get her through here. You have okay. stumped Paul. I have wow. stumped Paul. Survivor you get a t-shirt. <laughs> Awesome. It's not a Fair Play t-shirt, right? It's one of yours? It's a, it's a shirt with Renee uh, Seiler's face on it. You can hang up it in, in a secret scene to dry it off. <laughs> yes. All right, yeah, so this whole little character scene with Sandra winning the bet because Coach is supposed to be sharpening people, but he decides not to sharpen anybody that day. And, and then Boston's like, or, uh, Boston Rob is like mocking him. He's like, well, you should have got up there. And Coach is like, well, you know, I could have. And Rob's like, could have, should have, would have, didn't. I think the the best exchange is Coach saying, from the hero to the zero, and then Bob Bob just says back, from the villain to the never was. Yeah. And is it Russell or Tyson? Someone else in the scene says, Coach, you got to go up there and retrieve dragon eggs. I think that's Russell. Yes. So Russell has a good line there. So kudos to Russell. Uh, I mean, again, it's such a great scene of so many different characters, and... I believe, actually, after the season, Boston Bob did sign a dollar with that exact uh, inscription that Sandra requested and gave it to her. So she yes. won a million and one dollars on Survivor this season. I have the picture. She uh, posted it on Instagram or something, I forget. But it's on the Funny 115 of her holding up the one dollar that Boston Bob autographed and gave to her. It's a good picture. All right. So, yeah, we got that scene. Again, <laughs> the two-hour episode. There's so much going on here. We're not even to the immunity challenge yet. <laughs> All right, so now we go to the hero's camp at night two, and this scene can only be described as Sugar having an enormous <laughs> mental breakdown. Well, the I mean, yeah, it's okay. Like, I don't want to like Sarah laugh at like like her like breakdown stuff, but like just the way they like they com- they convey perfectly how annoying she is in this scene. Like, yeah. like the the way they cut from her to Colby is just it's it's flawless. Poor Colby just can't even, <laughs> in eight or nine years after its first incarnation, still apparently is just alluring in all the young women on Survivor that make <laughs> yeah. him touch them. Yeah. Here's Colby with his first world problems. He's like, all these young, beautiful women throw themselves at me. God, it's annoying. 
Yeah, so uh, this is the scene. If you don't remember, people are listening. It's the everyone's trying to sleep in the shelter, and Sugar realizes that everybody's cuddled up to an acute guy other than her. So she decides Colby is going to be her conquest, and she will follow him around the the uh, shelter all night, just cuddling up to him and talking to him. And he's like, "God, I just want to sleep." So yeah, it's a uh, <laughs> Sugar. I don't even know you. <laughs> yes, Sugar, very annoying and. Uh, that's probably why she gets voted out right here, although we'll, we'll, there's a little behind-the-scenes stuff with Sugar we'll get into when we get to her boot. There's more going on here than you just see in the episode. And the next day, we have day three for the heroes. Again, still not even to the first immunity challenge. That's how many scenes and how long this episode is. This is, this is one of my favorite scenes in the episode, personally, snapping the head off a chicken scene. Yeah, this is where James is actually still kind of funny in Heroes vs. <laughs> Villains, where he talks about how his, his great-great-grandmother did that to, basically, he says that, so JT, farm boy, snaps the neck of the rooster by just sort of, like, swinging it around, and James relays this story that apparently his great-great-grandmother did that to him when he was three, and it scared the life out of him, and he ends it by saying, it's traumatic, but it's funny now. Yeah, he's laughing. He's like, one of the greatest stories of my childhood that grandma snapped the head off a chicken and we all screamed and the chicken ran around and it was traumatic. And he's like, that was good times. <laughs> Yet another funny 115 entry, that scene right there. Just so, so much fun stuff. All right, so now I think we're finally up to the immunity challenge in the first episode, two hours into this podcast almost. Not two, I don't know, whatever we are. Anyway, okay. So they everybody gets their tree mail and they're going to do some challenge and... Jerry, of course, who is steering right into the curve of the villain persona, says, let's go, villains, get your evil on, which is a great quote. All right. So what's the challenge here? It's the, this is the paddle, the puzzle where they build a boat and then they have to paddle, right? Yeah, this is the I think it's the opening challenge from uh, Survivor Cook Islands, where they basically had to, like, build a weird puzzle boat and then paddle out, grab a torch, come back and then solve a puzzle, climb a ladder and put the puzzle at the top. Uh, it, so it's, basically, it's a combination puzzle and rowing challenge. It's actually a, a simplified version of Cook Islands. If you remember in the Cook Islands, they get like really out there with all their like challenges and the extra steps. It's it's actually like one fewer step than what was in the Cook Islands. But uh, yeah, Jeff gives us the reminder that both uh, Parvati and uh, and Candace had won this challenge in their first season, and now one of them was going to lose this time. Well. But 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 to be fair, it was poverty that did it the first time. Oh right right okay. Yeah. Which he does he still slips into from time to time on this season. I'm like seriously Jeff, like we really gonna accidentally call her poverty again? Oh I'm proud of Jeff. It's always nice to see people overcome poverty. <laughs> That's my dad joke, Jay. Just letting you know. Wow, I feel <laughs> bitched. <laughs> All right. So anyway, this challenge is notorious for a couple things. One is the heroes bust out to a huge lead at the start and they get to the end and they kind of blow it in the puzzle because of uh, I don't want to specifically say her name, but she's from Montana. She does not do well in the puzzle. Right, Paul? I don't remember that part. You have to fill me in, Mario. <laughs> well, she still has this knot in her stomach. She hasn't made the jump yet. She's still waiting to bud. One of the like, kind of like sad, like very, very, very subtle. It's not even like a, a storyline at all. It's just something if you notice, like how many times there's like Suri and Amanda are on the puzzle on something, but actually like don't do a good job. Like it kind of happens a lot. Well, there was the Montana school system, right, Paul? <laughs> that's right. Proud <laughs> Montana teacher right here. Yeah. All right. So that's the the major takeaway from the scene is that the heroes are way ahead. And then the uh, the girls at the end below the well, it's not the girls. It's Amanda, Suri, Rupert and Sugar. Let's let's put Rupert on the puzzle, because that's, I think, our our prime puzzle maker there. 
Does one of them look like a J? Yes. Use my toe as a guide. <laughs> so, so anyway, they blow it. But the other big takeaway from this challenge is Probst repeatedly bagging on Coach, which I just love where at the start – Coach is talking about how their shelter is not that bad, and Probst is like, well, remember, Coach is unstoppable. Nothing can hurt him. And then later there's a scene where, where Probst yells out, Coach, leading the villains through the water, using all that life experience in a kayak. <laughs> so, yeah, Coach has crossed the line into being a straight joke now where Probst is actively bagging on him in the challenge. But anyway, the villains win. The villains are going to be safe from the first tribal council. The heroes are going, and immediately Sugar bursts into tears right on cue. And we get a great confessional where Colby says, uh, well, you know, if Sugar's having an emotional breakdown on day three, he's like, I don't know how long she's going to last. And he's like, if we lose her, yeah, I don't think we're going to lose much. <laughs> so, great deck quote from Colby. All right. So the villains have won. The, uh, I think we're pretty much done with the villains for the episode other than, uh-huh. I know, the seesaw, right? Is that what we're talking about? Mario, the floor is yours on that one, right? You hey, Mike, no, Mike was one. going. Mike was okay, going. I'm giving right. it to him. It's the very rare uh, post-challenge victory scene where essentially the the villains are celebrating. And Mario, do you want to describe what this site was that ends up being number 115 on your funny 115 2.0? Yeah, it's a, just a great nonsense scene. There's no reason for it to be there. It's just the villains celebrating. And then Courtney's walking through the scene from right to left. And all of a sudden she passes... Russell and Coach, of all people, trying to break this board by putting it on a log and they're seesawing on it. And it's the weirdest visual of these two guys, like the little kids on a seesaw. And Courtney kind of looks at it and does a double take where she like reacts and, and flinches back. She's like, whoa. And it's just, there's no reason for that scene to be there. I just love that little visual, though. All right. So uh, what else here? Then and the villains debate who's going to be voted out. And we cut back to the heroes. And now we go Sugar's final moments in Heroes versus Villains. There's a bit of, you know, disagreement that's going on here because, as you talked about before, what's definitely going to screw the heroes early on here is they are already priming targets on the Mm -hmm. other side here. So you have essentially both sides in both Tom and Suri are vocalizing the same same thing, which is like, we can get rid of Sugar any point down the line. Let's let's gun for the big people right off the bat here. And so we do have some talker about how Tom feels they should go for Suri. Suri feels like they they should go for uh, somebody else, I believe. That, you know, there's a plan possibly to get rid of Amanda to, uh, you know, to maybe get the knot out of her stomach, but also to break up a bit of, like, the Micronesia stuff going on. So I'll give the editors kudos that at least they were trying to build some intrigue into an outcome that Colby mused only a few minutes ago as something that was pretty much foregone. Yeah, if I recall, it's basically going to come down to either Sugar or Sari or Stephanie. And in the end, again, like you said, it's a 9-1 vote. They get rid of Sugar. And Propen is... uh, Previous on later, we'll say Sugar paid for her uh, for her failure to do the puzzle. And I'm yeah, like, I don't uh-huh. think that's why she was voted. No. I think it was the the shelter more than anything. But well, and then it was um, this is like such one of those like little, really stupid scenes that I always like pick up on, and it's kind of a joke I have with um, with my wife and sister in law is when like Sari is uh, trying to like kind of reason with Amanda, and it's like you know, and Sari is like always like on like. You know, for her, she should keep sugar around, like she says. Like she always knows how to keep people um, ahead of her in the pecking order. So she's kind of trying to push the Stephanie agenda, and then Amanda just has this like brilliant quote here, where where um, Sri's like, "We can get rid of Stephanie. Is she really that great?" And then Amanda just says, "Maybe." She's a really str- she goes, "She's a really strong swimmer," and she just it's like 
uh, okay. Uh, like, it's like, okay, I don't know how to follow that. Like, I'm like, if anyone knows anything about Stephanie the Gross, like, that's like, she is killer swimmer. Like, I'm sure she's great. Like, I'm sure she's a great swimmer. But it's like, just sometimes I think, uh, and as Sri uh, will finally get to the point to in a few episodes from now, we'll say, uh, Amanda's not the sharpest tool in the shed. So uh, you could definitely sense that frustration uh, in that in that negotiation of, uh, of who should be out first. Well, wait, Paul, you're telling me that someone asked Amanda a question and she bungled the response? That is news to me. It's crazy, crazy. But, you know, when they end their conversation, this is what I was talking about, about how this season kind of, you know, as at, at the time going into this, I'm still very much all Team Amanda. And I am get very excited by kind of the closing scene here before we head to Tribal Council when Amanda says, you know, Suri and I, we're out for blood this time. And it kind of leaves this, like, they kind of come back to the Suri-Amanda thing. So, like, part of me is, like, really excited. Like, okay, this is we're going to see. It like Serena Amanda back in action. This is Amanda season. All right, third time's the charm. Yeah, and as we all know, it this did turn into the Amanda season. That's Maybe. what people call it, you know, online is uh, Survivor 20 Amanda season. Yes. <laughs> all right, so yeah, we go to tribal council, and Sugar just cries, and they all realize she's useless and annoying, and she's voted out nine to one, and it's completely unanimous, and uh, that's about it. That's the end of the first episode of Heroes versus Villains. And this is the point when I guess we need to talk about the behind the scenes stuff about Sugar and JT. I'm sure you guys are aware of that, right? Before we do, can I just give major props to this tribal council set? Maybe. The, the, the treehouse set where they're, what, like 40 feet up in the air and it's a giant open roof structure. It is beautiful. All right. You have officially given props. Good job. There we go. Props are given, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this came out, I can't remember if this information came out at the time or like a couple of years after Heroes vs. Villains, but apparently the story is that JT slept with Sugar a couple months before filming Heroes vs. Villains, and the fact that he seemed to like basically ghost her out on the island really screwed with her mentally, to the point where when she was voted out unanimously after being the only person in her season to not receive any votes, both jury-wise and elimination-wise, uh, in Ponderosa, she started to mix alcohol and aspirin and contemplated suicide. And, you know, there's a reason why when you hear all these stories about uh, heroes versus villains pre- uh, pre-merged Ponderosa, there aren't any Sugar stories. is because I believe Sugar was separated from the group. I think she was flown down to Australia for you know just just a, a suicide watch but yeah it's it's a really really sad ending to sugar's survivor career if you look at this episode through the lens of her just being in a tor a storm of emotions it's it's really tragic to have her go through this especially knowing what she attempts to do once she's voted out of the game yeah although it does bring something up obviously that's a horrific story and i wouldn't wish anybody to go through that and I'm not joking about this, but like you hear a lot from Survivor fans nowadays wondering how Brandon Hans made it through like the mental evaluations and stuff to get to Survivor. And you hear this all the time. People say it was very irresponsible. They don't think Brandon should have been allowed out there in the state that he was in. They just thought that the producers dropped the ball. How come you don't hear that more when it comes to sugar? I'm curious why the producers don't take more of a hit on that one. 
I mean, that's the thing. I mean, this is that's the type of behavior. If you're really screening for the contestants for unhealthy behaviors, you probably would catch and foresee ahead of time. And again, I'm not joking. I'm just talking from psychology and the screening they do. They do. I'm always curious why nobody ever mentions that the producers maybe were a little irresponsible casting sugar again. My guess is because it did not really come to much of a head on the show. Much like like the Brandon Hans thing was so public and such a part of the story that yes, the hardcore fans kind of know what happened with sugar but i think probably because it isn't as well known of a story is maybe why <laughs> there hasn't been and i'm sure the producers are somewhat happy about the fact yeah. that it didn't really come up on the show and she's taking <laughs> care of first and they did what they needed to do to you know to diffuse the situation when she was out but uh, i think they were probably lucky that you know considering her mental state they did not have her go farther in the game yeah yeah i mean it's like jay said before where there's so much that goes on behind the scenes, especially from a re- returning player perspective, that if the editors are going to f- be able to find a reason why on screen somebody went home, it's they'll, they'll be able to piece that together rather than sort of bringing up these more behind-the-scenes elements. So, like you talked about, Sugar, apparently because she bungled the puzzle, gets mm-hmm. voted out rather than because Sugar had this sort of torrid affair with JT before the season and was in a very emotionally vulnerable place that's the reason why she got voted off. So it, it, it's basically sort of painting it over with a, a veneer that I think shows a different color than what was actually happening. Yeah. Well, that does lead into a different question. I'm wondering how many people listening to this did not know about this JT and Sugar story. Because for the four of us, I would assume all four of us knew that. Yeah. And I thought it was just common knowledge. But now that you're mentioning that the producer that the producers never get any hits for that for you know allowing someone who is clearly in a weakened state to go into a very emotional game i never hear anybody criticizing that so now it makes me realize we might have just dropped a big piece of trivia on you that a lot of people didn't know so i am kind of shocked i will be interested in the feedback if you could let us know on twitter were you aware of this because now i'm curious how well known this was I, well this well there's that, but I th- I also think Mario like it's just what Paul said in the sense that you know because this was behind the scenes, mm-hmm. I I don't think people are monitoring that and looking at behind the scenes stuff and going look at this behind the scenes stuff that's happening. Producers, where are you? Kind of thing. Yeah. It's 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 the whole you need to see it. No, I agree. I agree. And let's also remember that you know this it airs in the spring of 2010, where I think social media and Twitter especially is pretty nascent. I feel like maybe if this type of thing happened. Nowadays, with the proliferation of, you know, both multiple outlets covering it in terms of exit interviews and social media, I think it would have been a much, much bigger deal. But I think because we were still in this odd thing where, you know, you couldn't really uh, communicate your message out there in a really effective and easy manner, that allowed the story to be obscured a bit more than some of these other things that have been going on in terms of controversies in recent seasons. No, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but that does make sense. Yeah, it's if this had happened five years later, this is one of the only stories anybody's talking about. Hmm, interesting. Although I will point out again that when JT does a heel turn, he goes all the way. So JT is fully embracing the hero to villain switch at this point. And I think, is that it? Did we finish episode one? Do you guys have any more thoughts before we uh, move on? All right, let's call it a pod. I think that's good. That's it, yeah. Hey. So I just want to thank you guys for listening. Oh. <laughs> Oh, oh, wow. It's only been an hour and a half. Okay, we can keep going. We may get through a second episode here. Wow. All right. And again, this is what I said with Heroes versus Villains that I don't know if you guys would agree with me, but 
this first episode is so iconic. There's so many good things going on, character scenes, fun moments, interactions, character building. And now we go from two ep- from a two-hour episode down to a one-hour episode. And if you watch these back-to-back, you really notice the change in quality. Like now, it's much less impressive and overwhelming this season because really, there's only going to be one or two subplots in these episodes now. And so that's what I always say that I think it was Jay, maybe Jay or Mike, I forget who said it, that people remember that first episode and think that's emblematic of the quality of heroes versus villains. And unfortunately, that's not the reality. We're going to go to a much more standard Survivor season for a couple episodes here. And unfortunately, we're going to lose one of my personal Survivor icons in this one, Stephanie. A very This is a heartbreaking episode for me to watch. I don't like this one. What? This, this is a rough one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Uh, What's happening? So the villains are at night and they're just uh, complaining about the weather and whining and Boston Rob is already turned off. He's like, I don't like these people. They just whine. And who is who's he specifically complaining about? He doesn't like Parvati. I think Courtney. I don't know if he likes he seems close with Sandra, but there's several scenes where he's talking about whiners and they cut to Sandra whining. So I'm not sure if she's involved. But yeah, it's just it's basically everybody against Boston Rob because he just doesn't understand the mentality of these people. And this is the next morning, I think, where Rob is trying to do the, he tried to build the shelter all by himself, right? Yeah, this is like the fourth or fifth time they've tried doing this because they sort of neglected working on the shelter, and as a result, uh, last night sort of showed the consequences of that. And you also see a nice, interesting shot of Boston Rob sort of like giving a, a couple of coughs that clearly he's sort of going to the Russell Swan school briefly of <laughs> work yourself to the bone and get sick as a result. <laughs> All right, so the villains are working on their shelter. We go over to the heroes' tribe, and the heroes are working on their shelter. And this is where we get one of the more random feuds I can remember in a Survivor season where Rupert suddenly hates Stephanie. <laughs> Just all of a sudden, she's not good for my game. Like, she has to go. And like, what? Why? Like, it's this weird subplot that goes all through this episode. First, Rupert hates Stephanie, and then James will later. But the Rupert thing just comes out of nowhere. I mean, is it a thing of, like, I'm America's favorite, she can't be America's favorite? Could it be that basic? Well, I don't know. I don't think I have talked about this on the podcast before, but I remember this is years ago. I think an interview with um, Johnny Fairplay. He told the story about, like, when um, after Stephanie was on Survivor and they were using her for a lot of promotional stuff for I don't know what season this was, that, like, Rupert was talking to Johnny Fairplay at some point, and he was like did you see? And Johnny Fairfield was like, what, like, what are you talking about? He's like, did you see who they have doing all their commercials now? It's not me. Mm. Stephanie. And so this is prior to all this time. Like, I remember there being this conversation about he, like about Rupert being so like down and out because they now, Stephanie was really kind of their new Rupert type of character in terms of like the branding of the show was, was Stephanie. And so I, I've always remembered that, that definitely was something that happened from Rupert's side, uh, being um, not a huge fan of of the fact that CBS loves Stephanie. That's really interesting, and I have never heard that before. And it's funny because I have always thought what Mike said. I think this is nothing more complicated than Rupert plays Survivor to win the fan favorite award. He's going to get the fan favorite, and he's only got one competitor out there, and that's Stephanie, who arguably may have been more popular than Rupert at her peak. I mean, they were basing a season around her and saying she was a hero and inspiration to every young girl out there who watches the show. Like, she was a big deal, and that cannot be overstated enough. Stephanie was a big deal. So, yeah, it's 
I always thought that Rupert just doesn't want her in there because she might steal his fan favorite. And the fact that you said that, Paul, 100% makes me even more entrenched in that belief. I think he just didn't want her taking his money. It's a, it's a weird, again, if we're talking about the metagame, that's an interesting aspect of it as well in terms of, like, I want to be the one who gets shown as the good guy. Uh, mm-hmm. and Stephanie even talks about that. She says she thinks that he plays up the good guy role so much that it's overkill. So I could yeah. only imagine, like, seeing that hero complex in person on the island because Rupert definitely seems to be like, I'm the hero and I know it. And I can imagine how that grinds on you when you're trying to actually, you know, survive. Yeah. Again, I just I know she's not popular. It's always an unpopular stance when I defend Stephanie, but I I always have sympathy for her because she was a big deal. They dragged her out of retirement to come back to Survivor, which I'm sure was a huge get because she had a ran a restaurant, she was married or engaged to a professional baseball player, I think by that. I'm not sure if they were together that early, but like she had a lot going on in her life. They've got her to come back. And not only does she show up in the season where she has no chance because she doesn't know anybody. She's out of the loop. She's way too old. I mean, she her season was way too far back to be even be part of these pregame alliances and in in the loop with all the idols and stuff. But now you got Rupert who has a hate boner for her for no reason on top of that. So like she has no chance whatsoever in the season and neither one of those are really under her control. Like she just was drawn out uh, I'm sure there's a poker term for it where you have draw the, the worst hand possible. That's what happens in Heroes versus Villains. So I just I'll be the one person hopefully who sticks up for her cuz I always feel bad for Stephanie here. I feel though in a way and and to to stick up a little bit for Rupert mm-hmm. even though I don't I don't really want to as well. I think that you know considering where people come from also sort of dictates that. You know, we talk about how Rupert is so consistent throughout his Survivor uh through all the seasons that he's played Survivor and you know, Mike talked about how, you know, he, he's in, in maybe pl- trying to play up, you know, the the um, the good guyness of it and 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 whatnot. And I like Paul's story about the the spokesman type thing. But mm-hmm. I think you always have to remember is that, you know, I, I think that with Rupert, it goes beyond I have to be a good guy for good guy's sake or I have to be a good guy because that's my television persona. I think, you know, we can't ever forget. Like, I know Rupert's, you know, he ran for governor once and, you know, he's doing all this sort of stuff going on there. But. Rupert started his journey, you know, he works with at-risk kids, you know, Mm -hmm. and and he works with, with, with at-risk teenagers and, and work with especially kids, you know, and, and, and especially, you know, people under the ages of like, you know, later high school age and and whatnot. I, I think that, you know, there's an intense pressure to create a persona and to keep that persona for, for for youth as as opposed to other people who are just like oh i'm just gonna be a tv character i'm gonna be you know a thing and and get a legacy you know with with him there's like this this added element this added responsibility that he's taken upon himself that you know i I think handcuffs him in a lot of ways yeah no i think that's very fair because that is his life that's not just his tv persona that is what he does yes yeah you know and then he's got a chance to you know there's there's all these sorts of things like you know he, he he wins the million dollars from the from the fan from the from the fan vote after all stars, you know, and he he helped he, some of that money he puts into you know his work. Like he 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 literally you know a lot of his 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 life was spent servicing you know uh, uh, trying trying to get you know make some of these kids' lives better in a lot of ways. And I and I you know I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say you know Bravo Rupert or something like that, but but you know it, it, it's a different element in that in that case. That's yeah. an interesting point. I mean, it's basically you experience this sometimes with like celebrities going on to reality shows where 
they want to maintain their image, and so they might make certain certain decisions with how they play that are different than if they were just a normal everyday person because they know they'll be in the spotlight. And Rupert sort of has to play to character, or else if he does things that are villainous, what is that going to mean for Rupert's kids and this hero heroic persona that he has outside of the game? Yeah. And you could even go further with that. Stephanie clearly didn't need the money as much as he does. Like you said, it's his foundation and stuff. That's what he does. And she is going to be married to a pro baseball player within a couple of years. So it's like and this money didn't make that big a deal to her. So but I just again, I just I always think of this for having sympathy for Stephanie that I just uh, she is such a competitor and such a, you know, stunning history and important history to Survivor. I just I, I always feel bad and I, I don't know why I do because I don't even think she's probably all that nice a person in real life. But I just it just the competitor in me sees how screwed she was in this season. And it always makes me feel bad. I, it must have been very demoralizing for her. Good to see that Mario Lanza forgot Survivor Guatemala. <laughs> I don't I don't ignore again I only consider a player's first season that's I've, it's always been that way I don't even remember she played twice all right I don't so, even remember she played twice <laughs> yeah you guys were still talking about it long after I'd forgotten it <laughs> all right so so that's it so yeah Rupert versus Stephanie is going to become a thing and, and Stephanie's gonna have a really rough next two days and now we go to the villains tribe and speaking of having a bad day Boston Bob is going to pass out here in a minute. Yes, yeah, so he's basically like, oh, in retrospect, I should have took a stranglehold on the tribe. If I come back, I'm going to definitely do that. And uh, he's like, he basically gives up on the shelter building while all the girls complain about how the the villain men suck compared to the hero men, which we, we talked about during our uh, our casting podcast last time. Then we get a weird, like, Blair Witch-esque shot of this camera shaking violently back and forth, I guess to simulate Rob's point of view. Because then they cut to the thing, and I guess it's because no cameramen were on him at the time, where we have this shakiness to simulate the experience, and then it cuts to Jerry finding Rob passed out in the middle of the jungle. Very strange. <laughs> Bring out the shaky cam for one scene. <laughs> yeah, so Rob is walking through this jungle, apparently has a massive seizure, and then falls. Yeah, and so all we see is Jerry, right? Jerry's the one who discovers him. She comes out, and there's, like, the corpse of Boston Bob out there under a tree. Is there a medical student here? We need help. <laughs> Dang it, wrong tribe. <laughs> yeah. so, we could so, get Danielle. Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. So, yeah. I'm glad the doctors got there first before with the scene of, of Russell running over to the dead Boston Rob and <laughs> rifling through his pants for an idol. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can just see us in the tribe. I can just see like Candace swooping in and going, "It's okay, it's okay. I can I can take it over. I, I've learned some things." Rob, can you poop? <laughs> That's good. She can wouldn't you... have the accent, so it would make more poop, sense. Comma mate. <laughs> can you poop, mate? Am I doing it right? Is that right? No. Wait. Might. Uh, okay. And they do a weird thing here where it's a commercial break when Jerry finds Rob. And Jeff does like a coming up next. And they show you like, don't worry, guys. Rob's okay. He's talking to them right now. He's crying, but he's still going to be fine. Your favorite player is still among us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> heroic, right? This is the heroic Rob scene. Like everyone comes around and, and they revive him. And Rob, you know, they're trying to get him to drink water. And he can't. He has basically becomes Ted Stryker in Airplane. He has a drinking <laughs> problem. Which is so funny because Boston Rob hates this scene. But it's but it's the beginning of like his rise into like this big 
survivor uh, hero, like you said, especially in this season. But I just love mm-hmm. the irony of the fact that he absolutely hates the crybaby-itis. <laughs> I do have to say a little behind-the-scenes story here. I probably will get in trouble for saying this. But when I was writing the Funny 115, one of the players I got really close to was Randy Bailey. Randy loves my, my website, so he and I would exchange emails. And Randy hates Boston Rob more than I've ever seen another player hate another player. Like, Randy will constantly point out, he goes, watch Boston Rob. Every single thing he does is an act for the cameras. He's like, when he passes out, when he's shaking, when he can't drink the water, he's playing up for the cameras. He's trying to sell an image. Watch him. Everything he does is fake. So that's one thing I always remember when I watch the scene that Randy thinks Rob faked this entire thing just to get airtime. <laughs> anyway, so I, I have just been blocked by Randy on Twitter, I'll just point out. <laughs> I do love that, you know, just like... When someone you love is in a serious accent, you get called to their side. Of course, medical is not the only people to rush to Rob's side here. Of course, Jeff Probst has to push people out of the way to make sure that he's beside him and questioning about his status. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Rob, are you with us? Count to ten. What do you think about the, the general sausage? Zoe, any comments on Zoe? What, Rob, are you back? Yeah, so anyway, Rob is okay. He just had a little crybabyitis. He got dehydrated and passed out, and he's back, and then everything's back right in the world. And what is it where Probe says the famous Probe-sism? Mariano's back. <laughs> I, I, he probably would have fist-bumped him if it wouldn't have just sent him sprawling on the ground again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, this is a big chunk of the episode, and... Okay, so we're back. We're done with that. And now it's time for the episode two immunity challenge. And again, just to reiterate again how truncated the second episode feels compared to the first when you cut an hour out of it. Yeah, now we're out of the immunity challenge and we're halfway through this episode. And this is the one where they have to roll the blocks, like these big square blocks, and they have to roll it down an obstacle course and then stack them up and spell a letter. And this is a uh, token sheen's challenge, if I recall, right? And yeah, and the goal is to try to get it on someone's broken toe. Like that's kind of the <laughs> yeah. You get bonus points. That's a bonus point. Yeah. Randy, God love Randy for people who don't know what Paul's talking about. At one point, Rupert's sitting out of the challenge, and he's got a broken toe, and he's sitting there all dejected. And at one point, the villains are rolling one of these giant two hundred pound blocks right past Rupert, and Randy's like, "Roll it on Rupert's toe." Now it looks like a W. <laughs> yes. You smushed it. But I just want to point it. out. And, and, and I'm not making a value judgment on this uh, either way, but just just to just to point out the humor level and and the 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 subtleties that is Mario Lanza, Sugar losing her top and giving everyone the the tri bird flip is number eighty four on the one fifteen. Uh-huh. Roll it on Rupert's toe is fifty four. Yeah, that's because he's being actively evil. I like the active evilness of it just it fits with randy's character so if, you, if you're taking digs at me fine fisher i'm not i'm, I'm just saying <laughs> okay well here's the point that i the other thing i love about the scene not only is randy yell roll it on rupert's toe right next to randy is courtney who cracks up when he says that because that's someone who's saying even something even more evil than courtney would say well, yeah considering that last episode she should break her shoulder she's like okay there's there's <laughs> yeah. uh people have got game out here i'm not the only one <laughs> yeah so anyway, this is the one where the heroes stop me if you've heard this before, but the heroes get way out ahead at, in the front at, for, at first, and then they blow it at the end because they can't figure out the puzzle part. Well, because basically what happens here is before the challenge, even we see them talking. They say, "Okay, JT's going to lead us through here because he's done this challenge before." And I actually believe I think this is one of the ones that Jollipow actually won in Survivor Token Sheens. 
But once that, <laughs> once they actually it happens, it seems like there are a lot of arguing between y'all, and it'll be, uh, it'll be up in the air as to what y'all means later on. But it seems like, at least from the edit, we're seeing that Stephanie is the main one to argue with JT and question his leadership here. Whereas Boston Rob is acting like that dictator he promised he would be, and is basically literally hauling blocks on his back and basically saying, everybody get out of the way while I do this. Was he carrying his family on the back or just the block? I don't know which is worse. <laughs> All right. I'm All sure right. Candace, the medical student, would have an opinion on what's good for your back or not there. So <laughs> wish we would have gotten that perspective. All right, we just start, should start every Candace impression with that sentence now. Hi, I'm a medical student, and <laughs> there we go. Now, now she has a character. We've officially come up with a historian's character. Thank you, Paul. You're welcome. <laughs> So yeah, the heroes lose again, and they're all bickering over the puzzle, and pretty much the last 20 minutes of this episode are, let's shit on Stephanie as much as we can. <laughs> I can't figure out what, because, you know, they're more entertaining than we let them out to be, but you were basically like, the heroes are not as fun compared to the villain's tribe. So, in a way, the hero's tribe is the new Lamina. Mm-hmm. But then you're talking about, you know, the heroes going out into a big lead and then blowing it at the end. So they're the new Oolong? Like, what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing, that the heroes should be a more fun tribe. I mean, these are big characters. You kind of remember, you don't always remember how fun some of these characters were, but Tom Westman has good stuff in the past. Sari has good stuff. James has good stuff. Stephanie may or may not have good stuff, depending on which version you remember of her. So, like, these are fun characters, yet it just doesn't work as a dynamic. And uh, it's it would be really interesting to figure out why. Why do you think this dynamic doesn't work between these people? Because there's not as many pot stirrers on that side. Yeah, because that's the thing is that when you look at these tribal councils, they're all pretty the, – these first two at least are all pretty straightforward, and it's clear like there's a concrete alliance of – what is it? Six that's going to form in this episode, and they're going to try to stick with it. So I think that, again, maybe they're playing up to their roles. Maybe it's just who they are as players, but they're a bit more conservative as compared to the villains who, despite prevailing in the end, are hot messes in and out of tribal councils. So – it's a little more of a steady bother than like the rapid waves that come up with the villains tribe. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, because you, you think about the dynamics of like survivor all stars when they, when that started, you know, with, um, Shapira and, and Mogo Mogo and, and Saboga, like you had people who stirred the pot in theory in all the tribes. And in fact, I would basically say that the one tribe that probably stirred the least was Saboga and they sucked. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you need all these different elements in order to make a tribe sort of interesting. And I think with the heroes, like Mike said, you kind of had everybody sort of playing close to the vest and conservatively. And so, therefore, it's just not happening. And I wonder as well if the fact that they ended up losing the first two challenges has an effect on it, too. Where just these are supposed to be the quote-unquote good guys, but the fact that they're down and out already, I think, dampens the mood. Where they're not all about having fun anymore. James, I mean, this is going to be his biggest heel turn in his Survivor career, where he comes off as a complete asshole here with completely misguided logic about getting rid of Stephanie. And I think it's just because of the frustration of losing so much. Well, I got to bring up one other thing is that the villains are really funny, most of them. And you see the lots of scenes of them just sitting around camp, cracking jokes and like bonding over that kind of stuff. And the heroes have people that give good quotes, but I don't remember. Imagine Tom or Colby or James sitting around cracking jokes with people. So I think it's just, even though it seems like the villains are a mess, they have actually have a more lighthearted group of people because they all have senses of humor. That's, I think, a big difference. I think you could be right there. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Steph is out there doing shtick to anybody. 
All right. So, yeah, we go back to camp here in the Heroes of Lost. This is where James starts his campaign on Stephanie saying, you know, not only did we lose today, but she's a jinx, y'all. She she's been the only person who got to the end all by herself. And he's going on this rant over and over that she she's bad luck. She never wins. She's just she, they can't have her around. She's just a like a curse. And it's, it's just like very personal. And like he's bringing up all this stuff about her past, which has nothing to do with this season. And this is where Tom will start, you know, sort of defending Stephanie. He's like, you know, James. That guy doesn't know anything about winning and losing. Stephanie was a Division One athlete. She played lacrosse. Like she knows about team sports and all this stuff. And James doesn't. And Tom's like, James is just an ass. He has no idea what he's talking about. And this is going to be really repeated the next twenty minutes. It's interesting, Mario. I didn't realize that you and James both have in common that you only regard Stephanie from her first Survivor appearance. <laughs> there you go. See, James and I. People often mistake me for James Clement. People come up to you at funerals? <laughs> they, they do. People, I'm constantly being asked to show my abs at funerals. My dad abs. Yeah, this is, this, is just a, this is a horrible look for James. And I can understand the frustration, but at the same time, A, he's going off with this, like, just cockamamie idea. And Stephanie is a great swimmer. Why would you want to get rid of her? <laughs> but especially how he says, like, he's, you know, talking about the one voice thing, and he gets very you know, candid saying people need to shut the fuck up. And if you're defensive, you're wrong. And this is where, at least personally, I really side with the Tom and Colby side of things, even though they're Mm -hmm. screwed numbers wise, Tom is for lack of a better term, Tom is the adult in this situation by being like, James is just being a big old baby from losing so many times when great, you know, you've been a winner your whole life. I doubt it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That little side. He's like, you've been a winner your whole life. I doubt it. (laughs) Okay, so right before we finish off the storyline of Stephanie, we're going to go back to the villains, and they have one more scene here where everyone's giving thanks to Rob for winning the puzzle for them. And, oh, Rob, is a, he's amazing. He got us this new tarp. And Rob goes out and, like, catches a giant clam. And this is, like, the last straw for Russell. He cannot handle this adulation of Rob. And this is like the, uh, if this were a Billy Joel song, these are the Rock and Roll Cola Wars. Russell can't take it anymore. Where he just Rob is way too popular. This has to end, and Russell is now makes it his life's mission that I will take Rob out of the game. I'm going to get it idle, and I will take him down. So again, it's really ramping up between these two, and uh, yeah, this is a fun scene. Speaking of non-fun scenes, let's go back to Stephanie getting smeared. <laughs> All right, yeah. So so again, James is going around telling everyone she's the worst. She has to. She's a cancer. She's got to get out of here. Like she never wins anything. She'll lose, and so Stephanie near and dear to my heart pulls out a quote here she's like vote me out over amanda are you shitting me which i love that logic because she is a very significant player and she's very good at stuff swimming especially and as amanda she's, she's a really strong swimmer maybe I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe yeah. so th- this is an interesting dynamic here because you have these factions of three apparently in steph tom and colby james rupert and amanda those are the three like very prominent anti-Stephanie people. And apparently JT, Candace, and Sari are all in the middle. And it's really a push for Tom and Stephanie, because God knows what Colby's doing, to try to bring over Sari and Candace. Uh, and Candace also says at one point, she feels like she's at the bottom of either alliance, no matter who she goes with. If only she had played with a person who had that experience of having to choose between two alliances at which she was at the, at the bottom of each. If only she could realize what it would be like to be that rat cancer. <laughs> yeah okay well i'll just simplify it for people who are not haven't watched this episode before it's really james amanda and rupert 
or Tom, Colby, and Stephanie. Those are the alliances, and this is where all the swing votes will determine who has the power here. And eventually, I mean, clearly where it's going is Stephanie's going to get voted out. But yeah, it's kind of a, this is a very pivotal vote. This will determine the power structure of the heroes from here on out. And Sari and Candace kind of meet, and they decide, you know, what we decide tonight determines who uh, who's going to rule this tribe for a while. And Sari, of course, says the the all-time Sari line, she goes, well, again, I don't care as long as it's not us. <laughs> so again, this is what Sari does, Sandra does, all these great players. They get right in the middle, and they don't really care as long as it's not them, and they can sway which way it's going to go. They have no interest. So with that, it, with that being said, we go to tribal council here. And Stephanie does not have a good tribal council. I, for one, am shocked. I... <laughs> so at least we all found out what y'all meant, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to sum up, James basically goes that Stephanie, or first he says one person should have been talking at the challenge and y'all were talking too much. And this is where Stephanie and James get into what y'all means. And James basically says, well, yeah, I didn't specifically mean you, but shut the fuck up. And Steph- it just really gets really ugly. And Stephanie's trying to defend herself. And James just badgers her and won't let her talk. Very, to be honest, very similar to what James did, I think, to Eliza back in Micronesia. It's not really out of character for James to do this. And Stephanie is really getting beaten down. And then Tom kind of sticks up for her and Colby does. But yeah, at the end of the day, Stephanie just basically gets berated, told to shut up. Then they all vote her out. And then she turns around and tries to give them an advice to work together. And James says, shut your mouth or something and get out of here. She says, here's a lesson. Next time y'all lose a challenge, a little less cursing (laughs) off. And she goes, shut your mouth. Uh, I also like earlier when Colby is the first to jump in to defend Stephanie, saying, like, James, you're attacking her. She's just trying to defend herself. And he goes, the two of y'all, that's enough. And then Tom goes, make it the three of them all. Yeah. Which is, like, just uh, – it's it's supposed to be a badass line, but it's so – the syntax behind it is so improper that it just comes off a bit corny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like the sentiment behind it, but, yeah, it's just a – it's a rough scene and – it does lead me, me into something, and this is a topic that I get in trouble for bringing up before, but why doesn't why did Stephanie not get more sympathy from the fan base here? Is it just because people don't like her from Guatemala or people don't like her in general? Because, I mean, it, honestly, this season, is this moment, this whole scene, in fact, this last 20 minutes of this episode is only a couple of steps away from basically Will yelling at Shireen in Worlds Apart. It's like very uncomfortable to watch. Yet Stephanie never really got much sympathy. And I'm curious why that is. Is it just because people don't like her? Do you you think five years later, maybe there would have been more? It's possible. That's what I was about to say. I think that there would have been a lot more of, again, like Will and Shereen, a lot more of these issues about, you know, gender roles in the game and, you know, uh, coded language that's based in misogyny. Because I I will say, to your point, I mean, people... Maybe people at the time, due to like the dirt of social media, did not necessarily flock to Stephanie's side. But man, did the community absolutely villainize James after this? Like his his reputation got his two time fan favorite winning reputation got tanked in one episode because of his boorish behavior. Uh, so I, I don't yeah. know if it was like a we all hate Stephanie. You know, I think unfortunately her legacy was left where at the reunion she's hawking her filet mignon pizza at Gigi's, <laughs> and that's sort of the the mimetic quality is what everyone remembers her for. But it's a rough way to go out of the game, especially after being so memorable and such a big character in her first two seasons. Yeah, and you remember that was her legacy. She was the hero to every young girl who ever wanted to play Survivor, and that was, I mean, again, we're selectively ignoring Guatemala, but. 
it was it's it's a staggering fall from grace how far she came from how big she was and yeah i'm not denying that james took a lot of hit people were really upset with him and it really diminished his legacy but i always wondered why more people didn't feel bad for stephanie and it was funny because on the the dvd i don't know if people watch the dvds of these anymore but they have the extended final words for all the players and stephanie is just wrecked she's in tears in her final words. And she even says she never cries. She hates that she's crying right now, but like that was so rough and they were, he was so personal with her and it was just terrible. Like he was coming after her repeatedly and like just to see someone that strong, so broken, it's just, it's, it just kind of breaks my heart that she never got more sympathy in the whole thing. That's, that's one thing I just always wanted to say on historians that I doubt Stephanie's listening to this, but there are a couple people out there who do feel bad for what she went through and remember what a big deal she once was. And it sucks that this is also the final part of her legacy, too. Again, you know, we talk so much about her in the Palau and Guatemala versions of this podcast, just about her huge role not only in the season and in the fan base. It sucks to see, and this she will not be the only old-school character that gets a bit dragged through the mud just due to these newer-schooler players, uh, you know, taking advantage of them, but... It really sucks to see. You know, this was, I think, the first big indication to me that heroes versus villains was going to draw some blood. It would not be as completely overwhelmingly negative as All-Stars, but there was still a chance for some hearts to be broken. Yeah. I also feel that, you know, to your point, that, you know, especially with this, like, I, I agree that, you know, five years later it would have been a thing, blah, 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 blah. But also, sort of what you talk about, Mario, with the fall from grace, in the sense that Stephanie has been falling from our grace, like, from... Mm-hmm. Awesome Stephanie and Palau, the last time we saw Stephanie was literally Guatemala, where she was terrible. And, you know, she's, she's you know, moving on and, and doing okay things with, with herself and, and, and whatnot. And, and like you said, sort of been apart from the Survivor uh, community, right? Mm-hmm. So we have that. And then on the other hand, we have James, who's been in, you know, two, two seasons. And we love James. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, especially in this in this context, like the aftermath afterwards, like you said, James, you know, really takes a hit from all of this. But at the time when it airs, it's it's one of those. Well, we side with or not not we side with. But, you know, we we're going into like if James and Stephanie are going to have a clash, we're probably going to side with James because he's 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 done more for us recently and he's a more mm-hmm. fan favorite now i'm not saying ever but but from right now it's you you side you you enter the argument siding with james we leave the argument going somewhere completely different but i i think that you know it james had enough goodwill built up that you know that's i think it stopped some of the backlash yeah no i think that's a really good point and i i will fully admit i was probably too close to the situation to ever really be able to look at it rationally because my my whole focus on survivors, survivor history. So I just always think of the long-term thing and I have a habit of only looking at a first person's first appearance. So I I never acknowledge anything after Palau. That's how I just will always view Stephanie. So I will, I would fully admit, I don't really look at this realistically, but as a survivor historian, hence the name of the podcast, that is, that will always be my viewpoint that I just find it very heartbreaking to know how Palau fits into these the the overall timeline of Survivor and its importance and then see how Stephanie ends up going out just getting you know wrecked and in tears because she just got berated so uh yeah that's <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore anybody else have any more comments nope all right so we've finished off the Stephanie episode let's move on to the Randy episode <laughs> it's that's more negative but for a different reason 
Yeah, there's this uh, yet another. Per- OK, I got a lot to say about this when we get to the end, because like I said, I know Randy's story very well. OK, so we start episode three where this is the quote I mentioned earlier, where previously on Survivor, uh, Probe says Russell made deals with anyone who would listen and also roped in poverty <laughs> or even, <laughs> even roped in poverty. Doesn't he talk about like black magic as well? something i don't know yeah he's really getting creative here voodoo priest russell hans <laughs> yes it's a live and let die all of a sudden it's a james bond movie <laughs> all right so uh so we go back to tribal council for the heroes and james has just gone mad ass on stephanie and this is where james or uh tom kind of comes up to james and says you know i understood what you didn't like stephanie just be a little gentler next time let's try not to be such an asshole to people which will come back and pay dividends nicely later in this episode what what he does to randy <laughs> so yeah james is uh kind of roid raging at this point i think yeah and basically it also reminds to colby and tom being like wow we're in way over our heads and tom yeah. says like what we he thought we would be playing by the queensberry rules <laughs> marcus of queensberry rules yeah what is, I know I kind of vaguely know what that means. Anybody know the specific definition? Is that's like that's like the rules of ethics on how a war is going to be fought or something like that, right? All right, nobody knows. <laughs> this is where we insert Paul pretending he knew it. We'll just put a sound clip there. Well, he, actually, he looked... it looks like it's rules for boxing. Ah, okay, thank you. I was yeah, I was I was I didn't know. I just looked it up too, Mike. But like in my head, I was. They actually have used that in like weird professional wrestling things. They have like takes on Queensberry rules, like it's in whatnot. And I'm always, I, I always am just like, oh, well, you know, they're just making fun of British people. But apparently it's a thing. Okay. Well, there you go, Tom, with his uh, intimate knowledge of British culture. <laughs> yes. But this does raise a point here, and we're making fun of it. But Tom and Colby clearly just not being part of the cool kids click on Survivor. And that's what I brought up earlier that Tom, Colby, and Stephanie were so on the outs because they had no idea who these people were. They hadn't been part of the community. And now Tom and Colby are left in the situation where they're these old timers playing with all these new timers. And that's uh, unfortunately the reality they are stuck in. It's crazy, though, because these are. On paper, two of the most popular Survivor players of all time, and they're the unpopular ones in this situation. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because this is where I expose some of my snobbery with, you know, when I I take it very seriously, the Survivor historian job, and I straight up look at it like Tom and Colby are so much more important than anybody else on that tribe, and it really cheeses me off when I see them getting treated with lack of respect from these newer players. So it's like, and I know that's kind of a snobbery way. I just think older players are more important than the newer season ones. But yeah, that's that, that yet another reason why it's hard for me to really buy into loving heroes versus villains, because it's repeatedly, other than Sandra winning, which is kind of an accident, it's really always modern players just being way more advanced and used to the style of game than these old people who have no idea what they're doing out there. All right. So we go to uh, the villains camp, the start of episode three, and this is where Parvati is cuddling with Russell. And this is where Boston Rob starts looking around and he gives a great uh, hint here. He's like to anybody who ever wants to play Survivor and be good at it in the future, watch who sleeps with each other and cuddles with each other at night. He's like 100% dead giveaway you know who's on whose side just by watching at night. And it's, it is interesting because it's something I've watched in the episodes ever since he mentioned that. That's what, something I look at now. I would venture to say this might be the single most astute observation about the general game of Survivor. Like, I think he just has a mm-hmm. really simple way of saying you don't usually sleep next to the guy you want to vote off. And it's something that's still even talked about to this day in Survivor Analytics when it comes to, okay, who's getting along with who? It's just those simple, 
you know, body language and social dynamics and be detected by who's hanging around with who and who's, you know, spending mm-hmm. their nights called up with each other. It's, it's so simple, but it's so complex <laughs> at the same time. I'm going to put our friend Paul on the spot here. I'm curious mm-hmm. if you know what I'm going to ask you, Paul. Boston Rob was not the first person in Survivor history to make that assessment that you can tell just by hanging who's hanging out with who, who is actually in an alliance together. Who was the first person? Do you remember someone way back earlier in Survivor history okay. says, I know, I'm I think glad, you know this. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because it seriously has been like bugging me this whole time. I'm like, I know this has come up before. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you count as a stump, you get a t-shirt, but can you give me the season? It was well. It it wasn't in a season specifically. It was in a. I'm gonna give it away here. It was in the Back to <laughs> Africa special. It was in the Back to Africa special before Africa, where previous Survivor players talked about how to be good at Survivor. Ah, okay. And it was someone from like Australia who had said mentioned that. Yes. Then who was it? Tina? No. It was Tina. Okay, it sounds like a a, a Tina observation. Of yeah. course, Mario's Mario's hold reverence to it and remembers it to the T. It's got to be Tina. <laughs> of Tina course, it's said Tina. it. Oh yeah. my God. Oh yeah, yeah. Tina said it in the Back to Africa special that you can always tell who's aligned by who based on who's sleeping next to each other and who's hanging around with each other at the campfire. And when she watches the seasons, that's what she watches. She can always tell. Even even though they don't, they don't give it away in the edit, you just look in the background and look at who's sitting next to each other. So it was Boston Rob gets the credit, but Tina was the first person to say that. Wow. So there you go. I stumped Paul twice in one episode. That was like half a t-shirt. Half stumped me. <laughs> I had to give you back to Africa. But it wasn't even in the it wasn't even in the show, so does it count as a stump? <laughs> it wasn't. Uh... You gonna have a little sob session? Uncle Mario's an a-hole. Yeah, Mario, listen, if you want it, like, can you approach Paul a little more gently next time? Go by the Queensberry rules. <laughs> All right, sorry. <laughs> I just want to win, y'all. Now, who are you referring to with y'all? <laughs> All right, just so anyway. Person, just me? <laughs> yeah, just you. All right, so, yeah, this is the uh, Boston Rob pointing out that there's way too many couples on this tribe. And he's like, Parvati is over there with Russell, and they're all over each other, and Danielle's with them. And then Jerry and Coach are together. And Rob, of course, says, I know how important a couple is on Survivor, how powerful that is. That is very bad. We have to break all these people up. So you can see the villains might be riding high up to now, but there's, it's it's going to get ugly soon. And this is also where we get this uh, mentality that Parvati is the most dangerous player in the game, at least according to, to Coach and Randy particularly. They say that we can't let Parvati do what she did last time uh, with her feminine wiles. <laughs> All right, what's interesting about this episode in particular is what a horrible edit Parvati gets in this episode. Did you guys notice that? She's portrayed as mean, lazy, mm-hmm. um, worthless, worthless. just flirts to get through it, like literally doesn't do anything, but pulls her bikini bottom down farther. Yeah, um, yeah not a great look for Parvati this episode. Yeah. Repeatedly. I mean, that is the entire point of this episode, that people repeatedly say, Parvati is absolutely worthless. She has no skills. She has no talent other than she bats her eyes and people will do her bidding. And it would be an embarrassment if she won. Like she gets one of the worst edits I've ever seen of any player in any season. And it's one of those things that you see all the time that, oh, I always thought Parvati should have won. I'm like, did you not see episode three and the edit she got? No winner has ever got that bad of an edit in one in once in their season. So that's one thing I always think when I watch this episode, this is the the edit just craps on Parvati. 
All right. So uh, let's see. There's a scene where the heroes are had a rough time last night and they're not cohesive because James and everybody fought. And but they have another a chicken catching bonding moment. So uh, I'm sure Paul liked that one. Of course. <laughs> All right. So they caught a chicken. So anyway, moving on back to the villains. So uh, this is the one. This is the scene where Russell is now walking around with Parvati attached to him and everybody knows it. And and everyone's just saying, you know, I don't know who this Russell guy is, but he walks around like he runs this place. He's got poverty attached to him. He's out looking for idols. And everyone's saying, I just don't trust him. I don't know who he is, but I don't trust him. And this is where Russell really starts to uh, rustle feathers on people. This is where he uh, turns up the rivalry on Rob saying, he's the daddy. I don't want him to be the daddy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He ain't my daddy. I'm Russell Hans. I'm the daddy. I'm my own daddy. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, I don't know genetically how you could do that. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so Russell and Parvati is a big deal. So we're really just setting up. This is the first time the villains will go to tribal council. And uh, <laughs> a great scene here where, <laughs> where it's a villains on episode uh, in, on day seven at night, and they're sitting around. And, and Coach, as he is wont to do, is telling people his kayak story. <laughs> Yeah, particularly his story about extreme dehydration, a real knee slapper around the campfire. <laughs> I love, I love again, the difference between token genes where people are enraptured by his story, even though Brendan is kind of calling BS on his story. It's not outwardly to his face. And this one coach starts telling, which I think is the same story. And Boston Rob is like, is this the same story as last night, coach? <laughs> Starting out awful similar. Yeah, sounds, sounds about the same. <laughs> I love. Anytime someone bounces insults off coach is fantastic. Uh, but Russell isn't gonna play that. He's uh he's gonna play rough. I'm gonna I'm gonna show these little bitches who's boss. Yeah. So yeah, during during the coach story, that Russell is apparently not enraptured with what's gonna happen to Coach in his kayaking adventure, and he goes out and he hides the machete. So he's going back to his old Samoa tactics, and then he's uh, gonna cause some conflict, and he threatens to hide Rob's little bee hat next. <laughs> I love the way he says that, his little bee, as if it's like a little, you know, a bumblebee-shaped hat or something. <laughs> or like a little bitch hat, like a bee, like doesn't want to swear. Or like a little beanie, like something like you would wear that's like, I don't know, like you would wear in like grade school or something. <laughs> it's a 1950s British schoolboy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little, little beanie. I'm going to take his little knickerbockers. <laughs> Rupert's bee hat's now a J hat. <laughs> B is for broke. <laughs> yeah, B is for broke. <laughs> B is for broke. <laughs> okay, so so the next morning, so Bob, Russell has hid the machete, and Coach has been cock-blocked in telling his, with his kayak story. So we go to the next morning at the villain's camp, and it opens with, as always, Coach doing his Coach Chi in front of the sun, which is a fantastic montage i had a lot of fun with on the funny 115 and this is where uh what randy goes out and finds a giant clam and brings it back and nobody wants some and it's really funny to compare the reaction to randy to the reaction to boston rob like when rob it's like go mike scooping here when (laughs) rob comes back with a clam there are angels that sing and like (laughs) trumpets that blare and when randy comes back they just stare at him like no i don't think so (laughs) Yeah, and there's there's a lot of fantastic musical cues in this scene between the Coach She helicopter shot with him doing, like, Gregorian chants <laughs> over it, and then the, like, E Street-esque saxophone music that plays when it cuts to Parvati sunbathing, when Randy's sort of music about, like, 
This is just like the real world. You don't necessarily need to work hard to get far. You just have to appeal yourself to the right people. <laughs> is this the same Gregorian chant you did yesterday, Coach? It's starting awful similar. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, so, and Randy can't open the clam because he doesn't have a machete, so everyone, everything's going wrong around the camp. And this is where, again, they, uh, Parvati just gets crapped on. And I know we have a couple of listeners out there who hate Parvati with a passion. You will like this section because <laughs> this is where Randy starts saying, you know, survivor is like life. You don't get ahead because you're good at things or because you have skills or because you're competent. You get ahead because you're lazy and you can schmooze. He goes, hard work means nothing. And Parvati is the queen. He's like, she does nothing. She brings nothing to anybody. She's the worst person ever, yet she will succeed just because she's lazy and she knows the right people. And then this will be brought up later. Well, Coach also brings this up that Parvati's lazy. She's entitled. She adds no value. It's not fair. She gets by on charm. She has nothing else other than that. And again, just... If you don't like Parvati, you would like this episode. <laughs> All right, so uh, are we up to the immunity challenge yet? Oh, no, this is where, sorry, there's, there's one quick scene before that where uh, JT, just to continue his villain edit, now starts a fight between Suri and Candace just to spread distrust in the tribe and just basically gets them after each other. Yeah, so basically Candace, who is a medical student, uh, talked yes. to JT about like, oh, we want to go to the end together, but people don't talk to me before uh, tribal council. And she says, you know, Sari, we work together, but, you know, she only will really work with me when she feels like she's safe. And so JT essentially just tells Sari that and tries to turn the two of them against each other. So, again, uh, you know, while we say that there aren't any shit stirrers on the Heroes Tribe, the lone exception in, like, these couple of episodes in particular, this one and the next one, is JT. B is for bastard. <laughs> All right, so we go up to the mini challenge here. And this is, the Heroes have not had many heroic moments in the season so far, but... Luckily, we have this challenge, the gladiator battle. <laughs> this would be the, the highest of high moments for the heroes, I would say. It's the most manic moment. They are losing their minds with each. They're like slowly degrading into cavemen with each and every matchup here. Like, uh, like Tyson will say, he feared for their sanity. Yeah, and he also says they, they were having a steroid sandwich before they came out there or something. Okay, for people who don't remember, this is where two people square off on a little platform, and they have these bags, and you basically shove the other person into the mud. And the heroes come here so pumped up and so angry, and like I said, just James channels all the rage he had towards Stephanie and brings into this challenge. And it's almost scary to watch. The heroes are so much more into this than the villains. And again, this is the challenge for uh, you win immunity plus reward, and the reward, I think, is what their luxury items plus like some coffee and sugar and stuff. Yeah, well, hopefully not sugar, considering the, the, the sordid history between heroes <laughs> and sugar. Um, but the interesting thing is, yeah, so they – it's been talked about a lot in, like, the annals of Survivor forums, but I don't think they outright mention it on the show. So, yeah, they have the luxury items. One really interesting shot that confirms James Clement, for his luxury item, brought his two unused hidden immunity idols from Survivor China. Yes. <laughs> And it was probably in bad taste that JT's luxury item was sugar. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. That's the sugar we were talking about, yeah. But yeah, the immunity oh, idols is great. Oh, I see. <laughs> it's a great visual joke that, yeah, James's <laughs> luxury item, you see it in the basket. It's the two idols he never played in China. <laughs> just as Mike said earlier, to give props to the Tribal Council set, I want to give props to just the setting for this platform. Like, just, you know, with everything around it. It's just amazing looking. Yeah. He is for beautiful. 
All right, so so we get this challenge, and they're all squaring off. And my first comment I was watching it today is that Sandra and Courtney sit out for the villains. I would have loved to see Courtney try to do this challenge against anybody. Like, she may have snapped in half. So we did miss that visual joke of Courtney trying to square off against Sari or somebody in this gladiator battle. Well, hopefully she'd square off against the medical student. She could also then, you know, attend to her. <laughs> well, I mean, this is also a clean sweep for the heroes, right? I know that they usually do more matchups than we see on TV, but I'm pretty sure they say first to eight or or first to, yeah, I think first to eight. And we see all eight matches. The heroes win every time. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a blowout. So we'll go down the list here. Tom against Russell and Tom just destroys Russell easily for the heroes. And then we have Parvati against Candace and Parvati puts up a good fight for the villains, but medical student Candace uses her medical knowledge to find her uses weak spot. Uses her medical knowledge. Yeah, she knows the weak spot. She knows which way the human body can bend. So she pushes Parvati off, and so the heroes are up to nothing. And the heroes are like jumping around and going crazy, and like it's it's like the the NCAA, like the the March Madness basketball, the guys waving towels and stuff after the upset. It's just crazy to watch the heroes just cheering. And then I think Jerry even looks at them as like, "Whoa, like this is out of control." <laughs> yeah, I think the the one big contribution of Danielle DiLorenzo to this season is her, the shot of her being covered in mud, saying, "This sucks." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, so so the next one is Coach against Rupert. Another iconic moment here where Coach actually wins the battle. He knocks off Rupert, but he does it by taking his hand off the bag and shoving him <laughs> off, to which James yeah. replies, no karate chopping. <laughs> well, because, of course, like you said in the opening challenge, as soon as Coach wins an individual match, he's going to go into his entire routine. And so he's screaming and he's doing the poses. And Jeff says, no, 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 no. Like it takes him a few minutes for it to get, actually get coach's attention that he actually did this wrong. <laughs> There's a, uh, this is a really random aside, but you might like this one, Mike. There's a mystery science theater episode called Gamera versus Giron. And it's about the two rubber suited monsters fighting each other. And I always remember this because every time one of the monsters wins a small victory over the other one, like kicks him and knocks him over, he does an entire elaborate set of victory poses and dances. And like then Gamera will get up and like, kick his ass. And so their joke on Mystery Science Theater is, you know, you'd get much further if you didn't celebrate every small victory. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i always think of with coach yeah that could very much apply here to coach because i mean it's a fantastic moment but it built up the anger within coach where when jeff says they have to do a do-over a uh, coach gets on the bandwagon of flipping the bird a little too late he decides to flip off probes <laughs> yes <laughs> no karate chopping so yeah so coach's victory is taken away and that would have been the one villain's victory and then rupert wins the second time and from, and from here on out, it's just a clean sweep of the, the heroes where Sari destroys Jerry. We got JT beating Tyson. We got Amanda beating Danielle. That's the one you're talking about where Danielle basically into the mud and ends up with mud all over her face looking miserable saying, this sucks. And then Colby versus Boston Rob, where it's kind of like a revenge from All-Stars. Colby actually wins this one. Yes. And then uh, the last one is James versus Randy, which is one of the most... The one of the, the even matchups I could think of in Survivor history, a gladiator battle between James, who's about what six five, pure muscle, and Randy, who is straight dad bod. <laughs> it does not go well for Randy. I mean, to Randy's credit, he does try to get in James' head by saying, "Yeah, you like fighting an old man, don't you?" Uh, but James is just too adrenaline filled right now. He literally pushes him in with one push, wins, and then throws the bag on Randy's face. 
Yeah, because that is the way of the hero. Shove the old man into the, into the mud and then throw a bag into his face. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, the heroes have won their first challenge and they go crazy. And the poor villains are like, yeah, let's just get out of here. Like, I don't care that we lost. I'm just happy we didn't die. <laughs> like, yeah, it was a, it's, a, it's, a fun, it's a fun scene. I guess we lost. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Whatevs. All right, so the villains go back to camp and they're licking their wounds and they're just, you know, shocked that the heroes were so into that challenge and so overly excited. And this is where uh, Randy knows he's in trouble. He's like, I don't really have any bonds here. I'm not part of the cool kids. I don't have anything in common with these younger females. And Randy knows he's pretty much screwed. And really his only play at this point is to go around and tell everyone, you know, Parvati is worthless, but she's worthless and dangerous. So don't let her get past tonight. And he starts going around and telling people and, he does his best, but it will not work out well for him. Yeah, he essentially makes the argument that we talked about before of, hey, she's got three people who she was in an alliance with on the other tribe. If she gets to the merge, what do you think is going to happen? Plus, she's got a nice wiggle, he says. And, of course, Coach, in true Coach fashion, dispels the notion. He has been coaching women's soccer for 13 <laughs> years and has never been once swayed by flirting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Coach is going to have a really good moment coming up here. But as we get to the end of the episode, it's really going to come down to Parvati or against Randy. And some people want Parvati out. Some people want Randy out. And Sandra doesn't care. She's like, I don't care. Whatever. It's not me. Whatever. And this is where uh, we go. The, the random feud between Jerry and Parvati. Which I love. I love how that scene is cut. I love every quote about it. I love Jerry talking about how she wants to punch Parvati in the face, and she's so angry, too. It's not even just like, you know, like, Parvati's kind of having fun with it, but, like, Jerry is, like, legitimately pissed. Like, she's like, all I can think about is how I just would punch her in the face. And uh, and then uh, Parvati's rebuttal about, you know, how she's just a bitter old cougar, and uh, I, I just love the Jerry and Parvati going at each other. You forgot the one part where Parvati says Jerry is the biggest fakey McGee ever. <laughs> oh, right. And then Jerry also wants to bottle up whatever uh, whatever Parvati has and use that in real life. It is funny out there. I mean, Parvati is a super popular player, and rightfully so. She's had a very successful run in Survivor. But we have more listeners on this show that hate Parvati. It's like with an insane hatred of her. Like, like I've got so many e emails this last week or so saying – I can't wait for you guys to dig into poverty. Just let her have it. I can't stand it. It's like mostly females that say that. So it's, it's just always interesting to see this scene that I know a lot of people just really love Jerry trying to tear down poverty and part. This is a fun scene that a lot of people enjoy for several reasons. I just love Jerry on this season. Can I yeah, just say that? He's great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Jerry's great. Cause she, she's been through hell. I mean, she's been through the ringer and the meat grinder of reality TV history. And she's been, she's never really had any highs. She's had a lot of lows and she's overcome them and she's just made peace with them at this point. So I love how she just doesn't seem to care that much now. Like she it's, it isn't that big a deal to her, but she's kind of made, she, she has a very healthy uh, viewpoint on what survivor is. So I think that's what I like the most about her. Well, it's also really interesting in that the last time we saw Jerry was on the All-Stars reunion where she sort of was pleading with the audience of like, hey, we're people, stop, you know. She obviously had a very questionable approach to what Survivor has done to her life, especially when it led to her getting booed off the stage by thousands of people. Mm -hmm. Like you said, she enters the game and she's like, man, I got all these nicknames, Manny or Manthe, that was one of my favorites. Like, she is steering into the curve on this one, and I think it leads to her 
having a bit more of an enjoyable time here between the coach stuff, between the going after this Parvati stuff. This might be, from a confessional perspective, the best Jerry in her three appearances. Yeah. Why do you like her so much, Jay? I'm curious. I think it's sort of what Mike said in the sense that clairvoyance isn't the right word, but I, I do enjoy when when people when time has gone by and people have perspective on things in in the sense that that you know Jerry's grown up a bit since since we've seen her last in in all Australia and in All Stars you know and, and she you know I I enjoy sort of her arc just as I enjoy Boston Rob's arc in a lot of ways you know but but Rob I think was Rob younger in Marquesas than Jerry was in Australia Oh yeah she was like 30 yeah. he was like yeah, yeah. See, she was she was more just self-actualized. She was more, you know, the person that she is in Australia than Rob was. So with Rob, we we literally see him mature, right? And and not so much with Jerry, but I think her maturation or her her journey is not so much her personal uh, growth arc. It's more along the lines of her coming to grips with just what Survivor is and what Survivor did to her. Because as we've said many times on this show, Jerry was considered one of the biggest reality villains of all time. And we all kind of scoff at that because, you know, she really didn't do all that much, right? But, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, back when Survivor Australia was super huge and, and Jerry was the big villain of the season, and, you know, that has got to affect you. And I think that, you know, she she dealt with in some ways she tried to lean into it sometimes and then other times she's like this is way too mean people are being way too mean for me and i just was on a television show trying to you know win a million bucks and all that sort of stuff and and then i think that when heroes versus villains has come around not only has she had some years but i think she's made peace with what has gone on Mm -hmm. and so i think that even more than all stars i think that this is like the one season that jerry was on where she literally just enjoyed it yeah now okay had she actually punched Parvati in the face, pro or con, does that help Jerry or hurt Jerry as a character? I mean, at this point, people were not big fans of Parvati, so I think that she would have endeared herself to the audience no matter what. Oh, yeah. That's the fan favorite right there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It might have lent, lent some teeth to some of the old school Survivor, because I think everyone's just like, oh, old school Survivor, whatever. It was super tame. And then you have, like, season two villain punching Parvati in the face. <laughs> <laughs> all right so so anyway this is uh yeah, parvati is not making a lot of friends on the tribe and here we go to the scene right before tribal council where randy and coach are in the water and they're talking and randy's warning his friend he's like you know coach this is micronesia 2.0 watch out if you don't if you guys don't stop this parvati's gonna make it to the end she's gonna team up with all her little black widow friends are gonna get to the end and and to me, this was really like the worst case scenario. I'm like, please don't let that happen. I didn't want this to be another micro. And Randy's really actively warning them it's going to happen. And uh, this is where we have one of the greatest coach moments of all time. You guys are aware of the speech I'm about to reference, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So I'm coach... turning off my mic. You have yeah, fun. Go ahead. Okay. Just give me a minute here. <clears throat> all right. So. So Coach starts by saying basically that nobody out here is honorable except for me, which is – that's a good way to start. That's how you always want to win over your audience with the start of your speech. I mean that's been Coach's mantra this entire time is like they're all doing this, but I haven't. He says in episode two, everyone is having breakdowns here except for me. Like he always has to add that as a clarifier to, <laughs> to make sure people know that he's, he's not like the rest of them. He's built from iron. Yes. So he's been sharpened to his fullest potential already. And this is where he says, you know, I hate to pontificate, but 
you know he's going to start pontificating. <laughs> and this is where he pulls the greatest speech out of his ass here, where he starts quoting Martin Luther King. And he says, you know, Martin Luther King says the greatest measure of a man is not how he, you know, succeeds and, and, and thrives in times of, you know, happiness, but it's really how he rises to controversy and challenge. And basically he's referencing Randy's like Randy's plight is like Martin Luther King's speech. And I'm explaining that we will, there's always hope. You always have to have hope in the world that impossible will happen, that we dare to dream and that will tomorrow we'll wake up and Randy will still be here. He will not be voted out. And coach is like, I will fight for him. I will fight for you, Randy. And he basically, my favorite thing about this speech is that basically he is comparing Randy's plight on Survivor to the civil rights movement. <laughs> so as we all know, that's what Martin Luther parallels. King, yeah, that is parallels. what Martin Luther King was really talking about, is how important it is that a middle-aged, middle-aged white man succeeds on a reality show. Well, we all remember that event where Rosa Parks was denied cookies from that plate that was going around on the bus. It's, it's a one-to-one comparison. <laughs> I just remember the website Survivor Sucks just lighting up like a switchboard with coach threads after this episode. So many people thought that was the greatest speech ever. Like, this is what we need more of from coach on Survivor. References to Martin Luther King. <laughs> like, we're oh, coach- my God. The lack of awareness on Coach is staggering, and that might be his greatest moment where he literally compares saving Randy from a blind side to the plight of the black man in the 60s. Look, we get accusations all the time, Bandit, about, about whether or not we take the game and the show too seriously, but I don't think any of us have ever compared someone getting voted out of Survivor to a civil rights movement. I think that, that's a line I do not cross. <laughs> and really, this is on the Funny 115, I'll give another plug, one of my all-time favorite jokes i've ever had on there is i have this entire speech from coach comparing randy to the civil rights movement and then i have a picture of a really annoyed martin luther king right after it saying that's not what i was talking about you dumb cracker so that's my all-time favorite joke that just comes out of nowhere i just love the way that's set up so anyway thank you coach for giving us this scene so anyway randy gets voted out. not only does randy get voted out i should point out that coach votes for him with a nice little number in the corner in the huge speech, he's going to fight for Randy. I'll be the one who will fight for the young man, for Randy, for the downtrodden. I'll fight for the underdog. And then Randy is voted out when Coach votes for him. Oh, my God. Well, we also get some fun other stuff in this tribal council. Paul, I'm sure you love the exchange between Sandra and Jeff about the machete. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's on fire here with, the, with what she says. And... Uh, you know, then obviously I think she like kind of even realizes she like oversteps her bounds with the with the coach stuff. So, you know, Sanders in full full effect this tribal. Well, this is it's it's actually funny because coach is going to overreact to this. Like we go to tribal council. It's funny, strange that coach would overreact to something. I know, but, right. But yeah, so it's all about how the machete left and how there's no work ethic and what it grew legs and walked off. Yeah, I was going to set Paul up for that. Paul, you're the one that does the voice, right? Sometimes, if I feel like it. All right, so you don't feel like it. Okay. Nope. So so anyway, yeah, and then Sandra says, like someone says, is there a leader here? And, and Sandra says, well, sometimes there's a leader, and usually it's Rob, but sometimes if Rob doesn't do it, then Coach will step up and tell us to do stuff. But I look over there, and Coach is off there doing nothing or, like, gathering firewood. And see, it's, like, not even that bad a slam, but Coach takes it so personally, and they have start bickering. And, like, it, you'd think it's just, like, the innocent little you know, conflict between two people, but coach is going to go into a full on sugar nervous breakdown next episode over the scene. 
remember when Coach said everyone was having breakdowns except for him? <laughs> well, yeah, that was up until now. <laughs> he had to wait until it was his turn. So, yeah, Randy is voted out 9-1, to one, and, and Randy's one vote is a warning shot across Boston Bob's bow just to warn him he better get rid of poverty. And, uh, yeah, so that's it. So Randy gets off, and is he the first person in Survivor history to throw his buff into the fire? I kind of forget here. Yeah, he did it before Redemption Island was doing it. Yeah, so he, he's a trendsetter here. He did, yeah. And so Randy is voted out nine to one. It's unanimous. He just never fit in. He was the weakest guy. And in his final words, he basically said he hates every one of them. He said the only people I even care about out there are Coach and Jerry. At least I hope they do well. I hope something good happens for them. I suspect they're going to be out here right after me. And he's like, it's just, I just cannot relate to these younger people in this game, like these. Girls in particular, he always calls them teenagers. These teenage girls on my tribe, I have nothing in common with it. We have no conversations about anything. And he's like, it's nothing against me, nothing against them. It's just we come from entirely different worlds and mindsets, and we can't have conversations. So he's like, this half the tribe I can't even talk to you right off the bat. So he's he was so disgusted, and that's obviously why he threw his buff in the fire. He didn't really want to count this as part of his survivor experience he made no acknowledgement of being part of heroes versus villains i'm specifically not asking him to do an intro for one of these episodes because i know he hates heroes versus villains so much he disavows it he absolutely hated boston rob just yeah he's randy's quite a piece of work and he came out of this season so disillusioned just he hated everything about it i know that yeah, I know this was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back when it comes to the show in general. You know, I, I, Randy has come back into the scene uh, due in part to his appearances on RHAP, but he, I think for a while, just sort of like put the show at arm's length because he did not enjoy his time on Heroes vs. Villains at all. And unfortunately, that's a bit of a string so far. I think next episode, when Sari gets the boot, that might pick things up again, considering that, again, she's going to come back. But these first three boots... They didn't necessarily leave the game in the best mental state. They were not the happiest. And the fact that the, the three of them have not appeared on our screens again since this point is very indicative. Yeah, and it's interesting because we've come such a long way from that first episode that was so fun and upbeat and iconic. And then episodes two and three are kind of bummers. Like, it's just, it's sad to see <laughs> these people go. Yeah, it's like, it's like the, the tonal shift almost gives you a whiplash. Like, whoa, like we just, what kind of season is this already? So, yeah, episode four is the one where it may, maybe gets a little more fun, but... Yeah, it's, I've always thought, again, that this, like Jay said, this season's reputation for being awesome funness is a little overblown because it's really not in most of these episodes. Well, I think that when you, when you, you know, in All-Stars, again, you know, they voted out Tina first because, you know, Sabogo went to Tribal Council. She was a winner. You know, there was this clear sort of agenda, right? And And everyone sort of knew it. And, you know, but you can sort of follow it up, you know, like even though Rob C. took his his boot really hard when Shapira finally went to tribal council. Like in the end, you can realize it was not a personal necessarily thing. It was, you know, mm -hmm. they were, they, they were voting in a certain way. Right. Whereas we've already established that that's not necessarily the case here. Like here, they're not toppling winners. They're toppling people. They're toppling persona. They're toppling stigma. And so I feel like for, if that's the case and you've got all returnees, I feel like there's nothing but hard feelings for the returnees that go first. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely 100% correct. So with that, we lose Randy, and we're about to oh, go... Wait, wait. I, I also want to point out, and, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with Randy, but I remember seeing an interview with Colby, I think, and Colby was talking about how, like, in Heroes versus Villains, like, they couldn't wander super far off of their uh, their camp, 
mm-hmm. not, not not necessarily due to terrain or something like that, but literally the producers are like, you can't go any further. Whereas like Colby was, you know, basically saying, you know, on in Australia and you know, in in an All Stars and stuff like that before, you know, you had a lot more latitude on where you can go and how far you can go, and so. Colby talked about how like it was sort of miserable in a lot of ways and not only just Colby being Colby, but just for the fact that you couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. and I feel like, you know, again, maybe that is playing into how some people go. So like with Randy, there's the people and whatnot, but also you go out there and then you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. And then you've got all this disillusionment going on. I, I feel like it's just a bad stew. A lot of that stuff. Yeah, Colby has been very verbal about that, and that's something I don't think gets talked about enough because people love to make fun of Colby. Oh, he sucked in Heroes vs. Villains, Superman in a fat suit, but he has been very vocal. It's like it just wasn't fun. It was not Survivor that we were used to where it's an adventure and you explore and like survival is actually part of the landscape. And like we were already to this point morphing into what Survivor is going to be 15, 20 seasons from now where it's just 100% game, no survival whatsoever. And so, yeah, Colby is definitely feeling it. I'm sure Tom probably is too. These really old school people are like this. It's a whole different kind of experience than we're used to at this point. And I will say, so they, they told Colby he couldn't go far, and they, they made that same mistake in Panama when they said you can't go far, but Bruce didn't hear them, and Bruce heard, can't go. I'm just going as many dad jokes as I can here. <laughs> All right. And as a medical student, Candace finds that very alarming. <laughs> as a medical student, I know he could go, but there was just blockage, and so it's actually a whole different issue. All right, so episode four, the Siri. This is where we lose a very iconic character the earliest she has ever been voted out in a season and uh, i have a lot of thoughts once we get out to the end of this one but uh okay i mean at least she was voted out this season <laughs> that's but still, true it was, it's it's still a fluke because it was in uh she was essentially idled out in- <laughs> yeah okay um can i tell a funny story about this this episode um so i don't forget to by the time we get to the end of it may i uncle mario if you promise it's funny yeah, I think it's pretty funny. Um, I have a very vivid memory of watching this episode in college. And then um, my friend Emily, who, uh, Mario, you'll remember from back in the day. Um, you, oh, yeah. We always watched Survivor together, and she was visiting me in town, so we were watching this episode. Well, one of my roommate's friends, they came up for this, for the whatever came up for the end of the week. So they show up and kind of crash the Survivor viewing. And one of them was so annoying and she was such a loud mouth and she had to get her two cents in and everything. So it's like, like pretty much like pretty early on in the episode, it might've been at the reward challenge and something that Sri does. She's like, Oh, she's going to get voted off. Like, Oh, she's terrible. Vote her off. And we were getting so mad. And my friend's like, you know what? She's actually in a majority alliance. So there's no way she's going home tonight. Like, we're just like trying to like, sh- like, you know, shut up dumb girl who shows up and is, you know, she's talking about all her drunk um, escapades and all this stuff. And she's like commenting on Survivor how Suri's going to get voted off. And then uh, by the end of the episode, we had to sit there and listen to how she was right about that. All right. I approve. That was a funny story. Thanks. Are we sure that, that this this drunk girl wasn't uh, the infamous Miss Yei, the uh, Survivor Heroes versus Villain spoiler? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I never thought about that. Paul, you run in different circles. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, by the way, hi, Emily, if you're listening. <laughs> okay, so episode four, the Suri one. This one starts with Coach, who has never had a nervous breakdown, having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so Coach tells us he's very sensitive, more sensitive than most even. 
In fact, he was sensitive long before people even remembered it or something, whatever. I don't know. I, I blew that joke. So anyway, so Coach goes out into the woods, and he's having a little cry, and Tyson pulls him aside. And I thought the Martin Luther King speech was a great coach moment, but Coach is going to top himself here, where <laughs> Coach first says, I did noble things, and I look ignoble, and the game doesn't deserve my nobility. And they're, it's basically Coach crying and Tyson hugging him and uh, reassuring him. And they're throwing around more mans and dudes than the scene, a scene of basketball at this point. It's a really, <laughs> it's the weirdest scene. It's like, I love you, man. I know, dude. I can't take this man. I know, dude. I'm here for it. Like, it's really like basketball, if you guys know what scene I'm talking about. And then Coach Tyson says, you know, I'll coach you through it, which, as we remember, Tyson always wanted to be the coach after Coach left. So he's come full circle here. Yeah, though I will note, does that mean if we're using a, using a baseball reference that Sandra was able to successfully psych Coach out? He couldn't make his shot? <laughs> she did, yeah. She she hit some Coach Chi against him and psyched him out to the point that he, he yelled and fell over and threw the ball. I mean, this is just fantastic. For all the mans and dudes, Ty, Tyson is such a straight shooter where he says, you know what, like, I could tell you some things that you might need to improve on. And Coach says, oh, yes, please. And he just goes straight into... <laughs> Don't wear, don't wear feathers in your hair tribal. Don't tell your stories. People don't believe your stories. They mock you. There's no reason to tell them. Do your Tai Chi in private, and so on and so on. <laughs> I love that, Tyson. I could tell you some things that will help. Coach is like, oh, really? What? <laughs> and Tyson has the list all prepared. <laughs> so, and put and, your and garbage the... in the garbage can, people. I can't stress this enough. <laughs> Yeah, just a great scene of Coach not realizing that these things he do might be off-putting to others. <laughs> what? So anyway, Coach tells us, or he tells Tyson, he might want to quit. He wants to quit the game. He wants out of here. Like, nobody's ever hurt him as much as Sandra. Who, and again, Sandra's been way meaner to other people in the past. I don't know why this one set him off so much. Because it made him feel ignoble. <laughs> All right, so Coach has his little cry session out in the woods, and Tyson, you know, coaches him through it, and then, and then Rob has to come reassure Coach, and Rob's like, you know, he had a little sob session out in the woods, and Coach is like, you know, I just want to hang out with you, Rob. Can't we sharpen each other? <laughs> like, my wife was watching with me, and she's laughing at that line. She's like, stop saying that. Stop saying you want to sharpen the other guys. It's creepy. <laughs> like, the only time he really gets kind of like, you know, like, bond with him and stuff is like for the challengers that's like cool but like <laughs> can we do it when, we're, when it's not before challenges when you're not betting me to risk my life climbing a tree yeah. can't we just hang out and do bro stuff <laughs> like I never thought I'd hear coach utter that line but yeah he's at a low point here where he's begging Boston Rob to ask him to prom basically <laughs> I also love how uh, Tyson also talks coach off the ledge by being like listen you should stay. You're in much better shape than you were last time. That that's his like piece of logic to convince him over is like, listen, you're 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 doing better than you did this last time yeah. out. You were fat, dude. Look, look, you you're doing good. <laughs> yeah, so Coach has a little renaissance here. He kind of gets his mojo back and he has a little speech where he's like, you know, I'm different than other people. And he starts quoting Confucius and he's like, Last of the Mohicans, I'm King Arthur, legend. And he's like, Coach will rise again. So Coach has rediscovered his mojo, and he's back. <laughs> I love Coach. Well, that was a, that was a nice 10 minutes of Survivor. I know. <laughs> that nervous breakdown of Coach right there for 10 minutes, the entire 10-minute episode all about Coach. 
So now we go to day, uh, what is it, day nine? Can you imagine, no, can you imagine the psyche of somebody who, like, basically has, like, a couple hours of just, like, you know, or or half a day or whatever of just, like, you know, intense feelings of, 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 of such ennui and then, you know, just can can then literally just be the alphaist of alphas literally just half a day later like like come on like people take pills for that i know <laughs> what is the movie i forget what movie oh it's field of dreams when uh james earl jones says you're seeing a whole host of psychiatrists aren't you <laughs> yeah all right, so, yeah, we're going to re- Reward Challenge in Episode 4 here, and this is one where they get to go through the Sears catalog and, and pick the uh, pick the items that they want to win in the reward. It's one of these kind of old classics, and this is where we go to the uh, Sliding Through Oil and Picking Up the Numerical Balls Challenge. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is basically an excuse for the, the heroic men to oil themselves up <laughs> and for some nice, some nice eye candy to occur. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know. There's really nothing here in my opinion. It's, it's more one-on-one matchups, but they do, they pale in comparison to what we had last episode. Yeah. I mean, it's a fun scene and it's featured very heavily in the opening credits and everyone remembers the shot of James all oiled up. Like, my God, that guy's ripped when he's all, looks like a, like a, one of these Greek wrestlers. Like, wow, that guy's ripped. Yeah. It's a fun scene they all slide the villains end up winning it there's some close matchups but i will point out for people who like background jokes if you watch this uh scene again watch courtney in the background goofing around and eating the oil which is just <laughs> little funny things courtney's always doing in the background <laughs> i think that's like a full day's worth of calories for courtney so it was, it was very helpful <laughs> but jeff do i take this oil back as well yeah. um candace the medical student was quick to tell her that you shouldn't eat that <laughs> All right. Thank you, Candace. All right. So the villains win the reward. Tyson ends up with the thing and they get the uh, Sears items. And this is where the game is kind of going to go to the next level because we're going to start introducing idols into the season. And I should point out, we've gone three whole episodes. Yeah. And before that, Coach's spirits are lifted and he says he has no plans of changing who he is. Despite the first quarter of this episode being about Coach saying, you know what? I really need to change my persona so that you know it helps my game out here. He says, "Nope, I didn't learn a lesson. Time to go back to doing kung fu karate moves." <laughs> yeah, so that is what he learned: is that the best way to recover from being made fun of things that he's doing is do them more. <laughs> you know, Martin Luther King once said. All right. So anyway, we go back to camp, and like I said, we've gone three whole episodes without a hidden immunity idol, and it's been fantastic. But our luck is going to change, because now they're going to start clogging up the episodes. And again, we're going to... There's a lot of this Russell and Rob and Russell and idols, and it's going to fall into the same stuff we kind of got sick of last season. But it's going to start here, where uh, the villains go back to their camp, and they have their tools. They won from Sears. And Coach, of course, like you said, has his mojo back. He is back absolutely unequivocally yes i'm back and when they're at camp russell opens up this uh, knife the sheath of a knife they got in the tools and an idle clue falls out onto the ground and this is going to rate this is going to stir up a lot of drama in the villains camp now the question i have is russell very clearly showed and gloated about it multiple times that he was able to find an idol without a clue you'd have to assume Either A, he's been searching but in the wrong places, or B, the producers didn't hide an idol yet until they got this reward? It's possible. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Is there behind-the-scenes info on this? Has he said he was looking for idols? I don't know. That would be my assumption, considering he was doing it on day one in Samoa. If he's replicating everything else about his game, why not that? 
Yeah. Okay. So maybe there just I, wasn't one. I just think this is a crazy idea that we have to wait four episodes to start looking for idols. Like that's what that first out that first. Yeah. Seriously, like that first that first episode really could have used used some more idols. Yeah. That's why that first episode was so boring because you need idols to drive the narrative. Sarcastic. That's my slash S for the redditors. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You never thought Mario would make a Reddit reference, but I did, right? There. Yeah, that definitely shows the, the age that we're living in right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Mario, we're not supposed to date this podcast. <laughs> I'm not JT. I'm not dating anybody. Oh, boy. <laughs> all right, so the, uh, the clue falls out in, the, in front of everybody on the villain's camp. And bless her heart, I think Sandra, within about 30 seconds, says, Whoever finds that idol is marked. This is a Danielle goes, what do you mean marked? <laughs> yeah. And then, then Sandra has to play off the whole scenario. Marked mean that we're gonna we're gonna vote for you, so you have to play it. Danielle's <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> Just some wonderful character dynamics here. Yeah. Sandra immediately gets pissed that whoever gets the idol gets voted out. Russell's like, fuck that, and immediately goes to look for the idol. <laughs> so all right, well, maybe we're not all on the same page around here. Again, this is stel- where... stellar uh, social player here. The, the whole tribe decides no one's no one go look for the idol, and and, and Russell does that right away. Yeah, he didn't even come up with an excuse. They're all working on the shelter. He's like, "All right, time to go." Yeah, and, and like Sandra understandably calls him a stupid ass, and Rob <laughs> calls him a hobbit on crack because he just decides to blatantly go look for this thing that will put him on the even more on the outs than when he was. Well, I like the dynamic here. You kind of see the power structure of of the villains where. Russell's like, I'm going to go for a walk. And Rob's like, I know he's going to look for an idol. And he sends Sandra, his trusted spy, go find out where he is. So Sandra, of course, as we know from Pearl Islands, is well-versed at hiding in bushes and spying on people. Just goes out, see, he's instantly looking for an idol, unless we're, like Paul said, he's a stupid ass. But Rob, Rob is a little thrown off guard here, I will say, in all fairness, that Rob, at this point in Survivor history, had never played with hidden immunity idols before so he's a little caught off guard this is not how survivor works in his world and he's like i've never done this before this is a weird dynamic so it's like it rob is a little bit rattled here because he knows russell's going to look for the idol and he knows they have to target russell but he's also not quite sure how it's going to play out and you see a little weakness in rob's game here this is not what he's used to so here we go back to the uh heroes camp and you know, if one idol in the game is enough, let's make sure we have one on the other camp, too, because that's always good. This one is the exact opposite of the villains, where everyone says, let's none of us look. The heroes are just, okay, we're all going to look now. Yeah, it's a free-for-all. Yeah, so the heroes are what? They're going through their coffee. They won some coffee a couple episodes ago, and they finally get to the bottom. They see this clue, and and so, yeah, like you said, immediately they all go out looking for the idol. It's like every man for himself. And who finds it? Tom finds it, right? Tom finds it right in front of Amanda and James. And maybe it's because Amanda was still trying to concentrate on, on if Stephanie was a good swimmer or not. But she does not notice Tom slipping the idol in his pocket. Well, no, she does. Oh, she, she does. Sees, she sees, I, I will, I will, in defense of Montana here, a special side part of the podcast, Amanda sees Tom pick up the idol and she sees him put it into his sock. So, you know, big shout out to your state, Paul. Thanks. <laughs> so... Tom has the idol here, and he and Colby are, who, of course, on the bottom of the heroes are like, well, I don't really... They've never played with idols before. They're like Boston Bob. And they're like, well, we'll use this to get us back in the game somehow, I guess. So here we go. we got two idols now, one on either side. 
All right, immunity challenge episode four. This is the one where the uh, lead, there's a collar inside a big old wicker ball, and you roll them through the course, and at the end they have to solve a maze. And of course, this is the Russell Swan memorial challenge. I mean, it, it was very close to being a literal memorial challenge. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's like so stupid when Jeff like tries to pump this up here and says, and one tribe will have the distinction of being the first tribe to win the challenge that was not previously completed. Wow, <laughs> what an honor. Well, you know what's interesting is if you look at this challenge, if you look close, you can still see a piece of Russell's chin on the corner of the uh, table maze. Uh-huh. Or one of his dreads. That's yeah, one of his dreads. They should have the editor's flash right there so you can see it. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's Boston Rob against Tom, and it's not an especially interesting challenge. It's far more interesting when someone almost dies during it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what made it a classic challenge for sure. <laughs> Other than that, it's kind of dull. They might as well have just repeated the Samoa one where they play bocce ball and uh, and make it themselves. <laughs> Is that how I pronounce it? Now I forget. No, how did you say it wrong? You said it right. It's bochi. I never said it. Yeah, there's no proof I ever said that. <laughs> that was with my British accent. I was doing the British thing. Mario, if you want to keep doing this podcast, I have a few suggestions. you got to stop saying bochi ball. you got to <laughs> stop making Reddit references. B is for bochi ball. All right, so... Hey, look, look, Reddit's not all bad. They had a thread about my voice. Let's talk about that for your fans. Oh, God. You know, Jay was just talking before this podcast how he loves people commenting on his voice and the Reddit <laughs> attention. So if you guys want to do more threads about Jay's sexy, sexy voice, please do. He really likes it. Let the record be shown. I said none of those things, but uh, it's oddly flattering to see posts like that. Yeah. How can we make this more about Jay? A question I ask myself every time we record. <laughs> I mean, look, it, it's all good. We're all good here. My toe is a Jay. See, Rupert's always got my back. He was able to participate in this challenge. I, I think he—I don't know if he was a guide or if he's just stood on the maze. But Rup is back in it. <laughs> Rup is back. <laughs> All right. So I made the mistake of of like scrolling through the funny one fifteen, and then when we get to the for the roll it on Rupert's toe, where we just see the the shot of Rupert Tribal Council. Mario has captioned it "Pooper." <laughs> You know, for some reason, that makes me laugh every goddamn time. Just a random shot of Rupert. I don't know why. Pooper. Yay. Oh, I'm an old person. Why is that funny? B is for bowel movement. (laughs) We're getting, okay, we're getting giddy now. It's late. All right, so so the villains win this challenge with Boston Bob, gets them through the table maze, and nobody dies, so it's nice. So we are going to Tribal Council, and it's going to be either Colby or Tom for the heroes. As as we saw before, it's really six against two at this point, So uh, and Tom has the idol. So this is where the next 15 minutes leading up to Tribal Council is all about if they're going to split the vote, who they're going to vote for, and how it's going to work. Yeah, though JT... Is already showing some hesitation, especially with medical student Candace. Uh, he doesn't. He wants to. He feels like Tom and Colby are more straight shooters, more solid guys, and these other people are more flippant, which I think is going to cause him to make his own flippant move later on. But they, they plant some seeds here in terms of JT's uh, hesitancy to his current situation, his current alliance of six. Okay, this this is a very complicated vote how it goes down it gets planned there's like three different storylines and it all culminates with Suri getting voted out and i'll try to simplify it for people who haven't watched in a while because i hate 
I don't like talking about strategy. It gets too complex. So basically what happens is uh, they're all going to vote out Candace because Candace is a scrambler and she's not really part of any alliance. And so they're worried about Candace and nobody wants to vote for Tom or Colby because they have that idol and they're worried about it. So we'll just take out Candace instead. And then what is it? Uh, everyone wants Candace out and Sari goes to Amanda and Sari's like, why are we not voting out Tom? Tom's got the idol. He's too dangerous. We can split the vote and vote out Tom. And so Sari starts pulling the vote back towards Tom instead. And JT sees it. JT sees how powerful Sari is, how good she is at swaying the vote. And he's like, I'm scared of Sari. I don't want Sari able to do this. So JT goes to Tom and Colby and said, let's use this idol and we can blindside Sari. So it's really Sari creeps out JT and it's going to go flinging right back at her now. And Tom has this fantastic quote. That's the title of the episode, but the tomorrow we make our apologies, tonight we make our move, which sounds like something that Coach would quote, you know, if he made another appearance on Survivor. Yeah, I think Copernicus said that, according to the coach. <laughs> yeah, tonight we move the planets. <laughs> yes. So anyway, yeah, what's going to happen is, again, I hate getting into nuts and bolts of strategies, but the, the main alliance is going to split their votes for... Tom and Colby, depending on who plays the idol. But JT is surreptitiously going to go and vote with Colby and Tom. So all of a sudden they have three votes instead of two. And they're basically going to pull the rug right out from Sari. And she does not see it coming at all. I mean, this is, this was so, it sucks because of all the people, it sucks to see Sari go out due to this move. But I was so rooting hard for Tom and Colby at the time that I was elated by this move. I was kissing JT's feet that he decided to, just randomly make this move. It made me sad, of course, in the next episode when he flips back immediately and sends Tom out. But these guys were not only able to survive another day, but they correctly played an idol when their era did not have idols in it whatsoever. Yeah, this is kind of a polarizing episode in Survivor history because it really depends on, like you said, if you're rooting for Tom and Colby, it's a really cool moment. If you're rooting for Suri, it's a really bad moment. If you just like unpredictable votes, it's a cool moment. If you like idol plays, it's a cool moment. I personally happen to have a grudge against Sari, and I've said this before, that as much as I like her as a character, I always feel when she's in the game, it makes the season worse because she has a habit of banding together the not important players, not interesting players, and they take out all the interesting players, and she's really good at it. And so you end up with people like Amanda and Danielle in the, fi in the finals when Sari's around. So that's always my beef with Sari. So I was thrilled. Again, as much as I like her, I think the seasons are better without her in it. So I was a big fan of this vote, but I could see why people might not like it as much. Although I will say, okay, before we get to our thoughts on the on Suri going here, this is the, the part where I said earlier where Rupert says, you know, our tribe's bad. I'm still making all these bad choices. And Probst is like, well, you don't have to do that. And Rupert's like, I know. <laughs> it's like, you're making the tribe worse every time because you make like, these stupid you're, promises. You're part of the problem. Yeah. He's like, I know. I know. Yeah, so, so that's the one moment. And then it's a really interesting vote here where Sari gets blindsided and she doesn't see it coming at all. She really gets a taste of her own medicine. And again, any final thoughts on Sari here and her your appearance in Heroes versus Villains? I mean, she's a fantastic character, so it sucks to, to lose her this early. And this will probably be her least remarkable appearance of her four. This will be the, the only time she goes out pre-merge. And again, it was by a pure fluke. It was by, you know, JT's whim that she ends up going out instead of Colby, it led to some excitement in the game, and who knows what could have happened. I mean, maybe Randy's uh, words of heating ended up coming to fruition here, where the second 
coming of Micronesia did not happen this season, and it might have been partially because Sari gets ends up uh, you know getting taken out here, and James ends up tweaking his knee. Otherwise, it could have been a very very different season in the post merge. Yeah, I will reiterate what I said um, in our preseason cover, or you know the the first show we did, is that really she plays the game like a villain. Like I feel like she and Coach are the two biggest examples of they get put on. The tri- uh, on the Heroes Tribe because you can't say Suri is a villain because she's loved so much and you can't say that Coach is a hero even though that's the way he plays because he like makes so many people so infuriated by watching him. People love to hate him. So mm. she has to be a hero because she's a fan favorite but she does not approach the game like like anyone else on that, on that Hero Tribe. I mean she is absolutely way more like a villain. So you know the fact that she made it you know, you know, a few rounds and, you know, it was a very tight call for her. I still, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, that horrible of a showing for her given the circumstances she was in. Mm-hmm. I think that you can always say, you know, I, I think a fallacy, you know, winners in, in things like that in Survivor is always this weird line where I don't really like bashing winners. That being said, I feel like if people say, the winner of a season of Survivor was the best player on that season. It's like, I guess in one way that's technically true, but you can be a good player of Survivor and not win. You know, Survivor boils down to a lot of elements, a lot of which are out of your control and or luck-based, right? And and a lot of this armchair Survivoring is literally trying to quantify something that is so random and we do our best but we can't fully cover anything that being said sari is a ridiculously good player at survivor and even this is a good move she's here and she's you know given this horrible hand and yet she made something great out of it and it was just it just took jt doing something i don't even say next level but just doing something completely unexpected and counter to everything that they thought in order to get her voted out yeah, I yeah. think that Suri really thrives, and she's a fantastic player, and that she usually has a good handle on the way that everyone is going to vote. So I think it makes sense that the one time she really gets voted out here is because this rogue element in JT goes completely haywire, and it was something that she couldn't control at all. Yeah, and I think we it should also be pointed out that as much crap as JT takes for heroes versus villains, and admittedly he's going to do some stupid stuff later, I don't think enough gets mentioned about the fact that this was a really cool move. Like he got Sari voted out and like Jay said, it was almost next level. So I think Jay, uh, JT should get credit for that as well. He actually had some good moments this season. And the fact that he doesn't get voted out immediately the next, you know, the next uh, tribal council that they're going to go to, that he's able to endear himself back to his majority alliance just shows how he's able to really work that social game. I know James is going to say in this episode that social game doesn't matter, but that shows firsthand how likability can take you very, very far in this game. Yeah, Yeah, I I would take James's word on how Survivor is played. (laughs) Yeah, okay, good. I'm I'm glad we at least mentioned that because the letter thing with JT in particular later is everyone loves to make fun of him. And I don't know what kind of debate we're going to get in over him giving the idol to Russell with the letter, but on paper, I really don't think that was that stupid a move. So I, I, I kind of take a little umbrage at JT always getting crapped on for heroes versus villains. I think he actually did some interesting stuff this season. We'll talk about it. I think that there were circumstances where if you observed it from a certain perspective, it could build a narrative that would lead you to make that move. 
At the same time, I, I do think that his Game Changers gaffes overshadow his uh, Heroes vs. Villains gaffes. They're more egregious, even though the Heroes vs. Villains one is more of a story point. Well, it's like with anything else. I mean, we'll, we'll get there when we get there with JT, but, you know, there there's, like in anything, like in sports, you know, sometimes sometimes the right move to make is something that is not culturally or, or societally acceptable. Um, and I, I don't want to make it so extreme like that, but... But a lot of, you know, like punting in football or, or things like that, like, you know, the, the, the science and the math basically says you shouldn't punt as often as people do. But, you know, they punt that way because that's how you do it. And if you become this weird rogue element where you never punt, you know, you're going to be ridiculed. And it's like I think that, you know, big risk taking things like that, which goes hand in hand with JT's letter to Russell. I think it's I think it's a move that maybe you make. But at the same time. It was executed poorly, and it didn't work out. So then we laugh at him for it. Yeah. And with that, I believe we have finished all four episodes we were planning to get through tonight. So I can't believe it. <laughs> I wow. Know. I want to pat us all on the back for actually having a podcast where we talked about episodes this time. So good job, Six team. Six and a half hours, four episodes. Love it. Yep. <laughs> it, was, it was a low bar to clear, but we did it. Yep. Good job, y'all. Which, which one voice was that? Yeah, I was talking to specifically Paul and Jay there. So that was that you have to read the inflection in my voice. Certain y'alls can mean different things. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. I was just saying, I can't wait till we get to the banana etiquette. <laughs> yeah, and then it was not what Jerry was doing when she was talking to Coach, just to clear that up. <laughs> yeah, this is a really interesting next set of episodes because it's really where this Russell versus Rob rivalry becomes the villain storyline and how it's going to essentially lead to this odd thing where the heroes are still going to kind of collapse in James hurting himself and Tom going, but the villains just completely start shooting themselves in the foot with the big Tyson kerfuffle, which I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about there as well. Then Russell getting the votes together to get out Boston Rob, and they just the heroes are able to keep winning challenges to make it 5-5 five, five at the merge. It's a The pre-merge is my favorite part of the season just because it is so for lack of a better term, bananas, uh, and it's going to keep on going. I think this this is a perfect place to stop because it marks a new turning point in the way that, that this game is going to function for the next little while. Yeah. You know what I'm really looking forward to is Sandra not having a confessional for seven episodes in a row. So we have that to look forward to. <laughs> All right. Uh, I will just wrap it up. And again, thank you again for tuning in and for your patience in between episodes. We know it takes a uh, long time between episodes and, I will say, just in our defense, the reason why it takes so long between episodes is that it's really quality control, is that I will only record historians if we all can be here and we're all ready for it and our schedules all line up. And unfortunately, that gets tough with how busy all of us do. Mike, I, and uh, Mike and I do tons of podcasts and other stuff. I know Jay works as his, his school play and Paul is a teacher. And also, you'd still do podcasting as well, right? Do you still do other stuff? Very rarely. Uh, once in a blue moon. All right. So, but anyway, so that's why. So the reason there's delays in episodes is because we don't just crank out crap just to have stuff out. Like, I make sure we everything's going to be real good. So, again, thank you for your patience. And uh, as always, until next time, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm Mike Bloom. I'm Paul Oslison. And we will talk to you guys pretty soon for Heroes vs. Villains Part 3. Until then, poopert. There's nobody out here that's honorable. There's nobody out here that's honorable anymore except for me i hate to pontificate about that but you know martin luther king says that the greatest measure of a man is not 
in the way he handles times of comfort, but in the way he rises with controversy and challenge. There's always hope. The last thing we have in life or in this game is hope that the impossible happens, that we dare to dream that Randy's going to wake up in this camp tomorrow. So yes, there's still hope, Paul. I still have a breath and a brain cell in my brain. I will fight for him. Yay. 